Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. I am excited to be joined by three new guests today on today's recording. I'm the only veteran on this particular episode. Uh, I got to meet all three of these fine gentlemen at uh, different conventions over the last year, uh, and I'm so happy to have all three of you here in person. Uh, Taylor is a friend that we've interacted with online, and then I'm uh, an enormous fan of both Tate Bromble. Uh, or, or uh, uh, I'm trying to think of my, my phone corrected Tate's name to Tape Rumble today, so uh, <laughs> which made sense. So uh, Tate Rumble's here, as well as Isaac Goodhart. It's wonderful to see you all. In the latter half of today's episode, we're going to be reviewing Amazing Adventures number 12, continuing the Beast Turns into a Monster stories for the new year. But first, let me have each of my guests introduce themselves. Uh, let me know your name, your pronouns, uh, where we may know you from. And today's interview question, we're going to talk about a ridiculous makeover in the latter half. Uh, what What's the prettiest you've ever looked in makeup? Uh, let's begin with Tate. Hi, Tate. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this. Uh, my name is Tate Bromble. My pronouns are he, him. And um, I'm a writer based, a comic book writer based in Toronto, Canada. Um, you might know me from books like House of Slaughter, Behold Behemoth, The Oddly Pedestrian Life of Christopher Chaos, um, and my debut comic, which was Barbarian Red Planet, came out a couple of years ago now. Um, and for the prettiest I've looked in makeup was probably this past Halloween. We did a murder mystery, and I played a very mysterious gothic woman with lots of secrets and i wore like a black funeral veil and like a black dress kind of um but i I didn't wear i only had a bit of makeup i had like eyeliner and mascara um i dream of having a full my full face painted but one day um but i i definitely looked good i got a lot of compliments that night that's fantastic. It's so great to see you. I'm a big fan. Uh, I'm excited to talk about some of your work. Uh, let's go over to Isaac next. Hello, Isaac. Hi. Um, so my pronouns are he, him, and I am the interior artist of The Oddly Pedestrian Life of Christopher Chaos, which is written by Tate and created by James Tynan. And before that book, I did a couple of things at DC Comics and a couple of things at uh, TalkHouse. Um, and the prettiest I ever looked in makeup, uh, that's an easy question because I only did it once, um, but it was actually when we met Chad at, at FlameCon, I decided to go to that convention in full drag. So I was just covered head to toe in blue and I had four inch heels and I had two friends completely beat my face because I wanted to look like, um, Alaska Thunderfuck and... Riju Rochu. So um, I had a drag queen friend and burlesque friend, and they both just like painted my face and did tests on me. And it was like a whole thing. It was an operation that lasted like a week, but um, glad I and did it. Beautiful. And thank you. And you know, let me tell you this I am proud. You will never see like my art hanging up on my walls. I'm not one of the, I can't look at anything I've ever drawn. That moment in drag is the most proud thing. I've ever done in my life. 
So you can't yeah, tell me, me nothing. Too. I was like, oh, I look amazing. Here so, is a uh, here is my side of that story. I'm walking around FlameCon. I meet uh, Michael <laughs> Dylanus. I meet James Tynan. And, and then I walk around the corner, and there's Tate Bromley and Isaac Goodhart. I'm like, oh my god! I got a I got uh, Michael to do a puppet master for my wall, and then I got Isaac to agree to draw Madame Hydra for my wall. Uh, signed up for the commission, returned several hours later, and there was like a woman in blue behind the table where Isaac Goodhart <laughs> had previously been there. And I was like, uh, is Isaac coming back? <laughs> but you looked fabulous. That was an incredible day. Uh, let's go Thank over to you. Taylor next. Hi, Taylor. Hey, so my name's Taylor. Uh, pronouns are he, him. Um, I am just a super fan. I haven't kind of done anything uh, professional in the community just yet. I have some ideas. We'll see if that happens or not. Um, going along with the theme, my, the best I've looked in makeup was actually a few days after Chad and I met back in September at the Uncanny Experience. Um, I was put in drag for the first time at a local drag bar. Um, one of the regular queens did my full makeup. I had a full outfit on. I was tall, voluptuous. None of my friends recognized me. My partner didn't recognize me. Um, I was Miss Phoenix Gray, which is kind of on par. <laughs> uh, you looked fabulous. I've seen the photos. Uh, I got to meet Taylor at the Uncanny Experience. Both FlimCon and the Uncanny Experience were two just extraordinary, wonderful uh, experiences. Both I uh, I got to go as a professional to both shows. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, Taylor, it was so fun hanging out with you. Uh, my husband says hello. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I am a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, an author, and a documentarian, and the current host of this show. I, uh, I've i only worn drag once, and this is a sad story. I recently posted an image on my personal social media for those that have uh, been allowed to follow me. I uh, <laughs> I was 22, and I was desperate to like be straight, and I was a theater kid, so I got a job at a Summerstock theater. They were doing two productions. One of them was Calamity Jane. And I really hoped to get the romantic lead in the show so that I could finally kiss a girl. Because when I was dating <laughs> girls, I couldn't kiss them. But if I was on stage and my character had to do it, <laughs> that I would have to. And instead of getting cast in the romantic lead, they cast me as like the foppish actor-singer character who does a full number in drag during the performance. <laughs> uh, so I had to sing this awful song dressed in a pink and black dress with like a padded bra and like full lipstick on. My wig gets snatched off in the middle of the number. Uh, it was a it was a delightful experience, but I really should have come out much sooner, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm so happy to have uh, all of you here today. We're gonna begin by just talking about uh, comics a little bit and queer comics more specifically. Uh, we uh, we re we we frequently talk on the show about Bobby coming out, Iceman coming out, uh, and how comics have kind of changed since then. I have an interview with Simon Furman coming up after this show, who wrote the North Star series in the 90s, which was a very different time for queer characters and queer creators. Uh, and there is a plethora of queer comics out there. There's a lot of really incredible things to read and a lot of diversity in the way stories are being told and more and more queer characters appearing all the time with queer creators uh, attached to them. It's such a huge honor to have met James Tynan, but uh, Isaac and uh, Tate, both of you, I've been following your work for some time. Uh, Isaac, I want to start with you here, if I can. 
I uh, My favorite work of yours is the one that I want to begin with, just because it's nostalgic to me. I love Mr. Freeze. I'm an old, like, Batman 60s guy. And reading your work on Victor and Nora, the Gotham love story uh... Uh, with Lauren Miracle, uh, subsequently, the, the Catwoman story is also phenomenal. But I would love to, if you would be willing to, kind of start with your origin story and tell me, if you would, about some of your professional work and... Uh, and give me a little bit of uh, Victor and Nora, if you can, in that. <laughs> um, well, first of all, let me just say thank you very much. I think Victor and Nora is, um, without a doubt, the thing that I'm most proud of. Uh, that, or, no, that's not that's not the right way of saying it. It's the book that ha- I have the most personal connection to. Um, that's the only thing I ever pitched to DC Comics, and and. It's the first thing that I ever brought to them that was then my idea from like beginning to end. So um, everything that I threw to Lauren, because that was our second book together. First, we did Catwoman. Uh, it was called Under the Moon, a Catwoman Tale. So DC said, hey, um, we'd like to keep working with you. Uh, here are these characters we think you'd be the right fit for. And we weren't jiving with any of them. To be honest, I hadn't heard of most of them. And um, they said, okay, well, come back to us with a character that you'd like to work on. Um, We like the darker elements that you're doing in Catwoman. We do need a romance. So if you can fit, we're looking for a romance book for our line. So if you can think of something that's like a dark romance, then let us know. And then I grew up with Batman the Animated Series. Uh, So for me, it was a no-brainer. Like, that was the first thing that I thought of was... Mr. Freeze and specifically the Heart of Ice episode of the animated series. So I wanted to do another take on that, but the hook, and this is what we pitched on the phone, the hook of our Victor and Nora book is that half the book would be told through Nora's point of view, which hadn't really been done, at least not in the way that we were doing it. So um, our questions that we wanted to explore were, is Nora... Who is she? Did she want to be frozen? Um, was she this perfect angel the way that uh, Victor always described her as? Like, who was she as a person? Because up to that point, we've seen her mostly, by and large, as kind of like, um, she's literally in a refrigerator, right? She's just like this this, this uh, catalyst. She's more of the like- The ultimate definition of being else. fridged when you're in a fridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So- um, so that was that was what we did, and so uh, the story is told um, with alternating points of view. So the first chapter is told through Victor's point of view, and the second chapter is Nora on and on until the end. So very proud of it. Thank you so much. Uh, um, I'm very excited when people ask about that book in particular. Have you ever seen uh, Sunday in the Park with George? No. This Victor and Nora is Sunday in the Park with George in a comic book form. It's the mad scientist and the beautiful girl, uh, but it gives a lot more voice to the beautiful girl. I, I really enjoy this book. It's it's really it's really beautifully done. Uh, can I hear a little of your origin story, Isaac? How did you get into comics? Yeah, sure. So I I uh, studied at uh, School of Visual Arts. I always wanted to be a comic book drawer. So. Uh, School of Visual Arts was where I had to be because the faculty were people that I was a huge fan of. Um, David Mazzucchelli taught there, Klaus Janssen, Phil Jimenez. And I was just like, I need to do whatever I can to be in the same room as these guys and to and to um, <laughs> learn their secrets. 
So I took their classes, all of them. I became, I'm very lucky. I've become friends with Phil Jimenez, who is now drawing covers for us on Christopher Chaos. And um, and Klaus Jansen came to my wedding uh, uh, last year, which was awesome. And uh, But then I didn't have a job in comics. It took me a while after graduating before I was able to break in. So I was working at a storyboarding company. And after every nine to five work day, I was working on my comic book portfolio until Top Cow uh, Comics, which is a division of Image Comics, they had this contest, uh, 10 pages, and they'll put you, you draw 10 pages, and if you draw them well, they're going to put you on a fill-in issue of one of their titles. This one in particular was Artifacts. So my debut issue was Artifacts number 38. And after that, they offered me a book called Postal, which was a very dark book uh, written by Brian Hill, who went off to do a lot of really big amazing books miles morales and hulk and blade you drew, the, most you drew the hell out of that book man that's it's a beautiful book. oh thank you very much um thank you thank you uh yeah that was 25 issues which was a very long run uh for an for a quote-unquote indie book um and then um after that i jumped ship over to dc comics and uh my first thing published there was a zatanna short story with ryan katie and um and then they threw me on a lot of those teen years books. So we did uh, Catwoman. Ryan's coming on my show soon. I was just going to toss that out. I got to meet him in person. Okay, very cool. Yeah. yeah, no, I was listening to a couple of your past episodes. Uh, Steve Fox, friend of the show, uh, he was actually sponging me blue on the day, the morning of FlameCon. <laughs> and we were gossiping, and he was telling me about his plans for Dark X-Men. So, yeah. He's so um, great. He's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, so we all kind of like, I guess, sort of came up together. Uh, Ryan and Steve are like super close and uh, Teeny Howard. And, you know, I think we all started at Top Cow. I'm, in, uh, I'm in Utah and I uh, live down the road from Philip CV, who's like a very close personal friend. I know he's in the middle of all that, too. Phil CV is just, he's having a moment right now. Can we all just like celebrate Phil CV? I'm so happy for him. He's the best yeah. guy. He's just, yeah, he's the sweetest. Yeah. He's such a sweetheart. Yeah. Um, all the while, so um, just to wrap up real quick, um, I was friends with uh, James just through the convention scene. And on my third uh, DCYA book, um, he saw my work and he was like, oh, I'm doing. I'm planning a why thing. You should uh, uh, do this stuff with me. I had I had talked about this on a on a comic book panel. I might get in trouble for saying it here. I'm surprised I didn't get in trouble for it last time. But I had a project at DC Greenlit with Steve Fox, and we were going to do this big sprawling story, and we were so excited about it. And then Jane said, "How about you leave DC and do this with me?" And I was like, oh, I don't know. And I was talking to Steve about it. And Steve was the one that was like, Isaac, go work with James. And I was like, oh, my God, I guess I have to work with James. And so that's how um, that's how we started on Christopher Chaos. And it's all thanks to uh, Steve being the most reasonable, greatest, supportive friend that you could ask for. I, uh, I'm i doing this show where I'm interviewing Marvel folks mostly, but also other queer writers. But I'm also getting a book out there. It's uh, it's really inter it's inter interesting, like interfacing with all these different corners of this world that's so big, but also so small, you know. Uh, yeah. Tate, I'm going to start right at the top with you as well. And I'd love, again, to hear your origin story. My favorite cool. book of yours is uh, Barbellion, uh, The Red Planet. 
I uh, made a documentary a few years back that required me to like dig into old archives and research and like really like put put myself into another time and place. Uh, and opening mm -hmm. your book immediately takes me back to that time and place, but a very different story. Obviously, it's a sci-fi story. Uh, seeing the character of Miguel is my favorite and watching his progression through, you know, uh, being a bold AIDS activist and his love story. I would love to hear, again, your origin story, but tell me about Barbellion as well. It's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. That book means a lot to me just because it's my it was my first comic um, that got published. Uh, but yeah, I'll talk about that in a second. For my origin story, I um, went to school here in Toronto for like film and TV stuff. And because I was like, I want to write. Ever since I was a kid, I was always writing. Um, but and I always and I loved comics. Um, but I was like, there's no way to become a comic book writer. Like, how do you do that? So I went to school for TV and focused on TV screenwriting um, and learned like the basics of that. And I was interning for a producer here in Toronto and I found out that she was adapting Essex County like Jeff Lemire's comic uh, graphic novel so I was like oh my god I need to, like please let me into this writer's room like I will take on more free labor <laughs> let me into this writer's room I'll, I'll order the lunches and get coffees um and she did and then one day Jeff like showed up in the room um and I was freaking out because I was just like a big fan of his work um, and we like instantly hit it off uh, just because I also love comics. And we would, I remember every lunch, we would like walk the streets and he would tell me all the DC drama. And it was just like, <laughs> I would just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was just losing my mind that I was like just in conversation with him. Um, and then eventually I was just like, I don't know how to get into writing for TV. It's such like a hard, it just seems like such a hard path. And he was like, you love comics so much. Like, why aren't you writing comics? And I was like, I can do that. Um, so then basically, he took me under his wing and started mentoring me. I became like an official assistant of his. Um, and then at some point after the first, he actually, after a year or two of knowing him, he actually was like, hey, Tate, I want to do a black camera encyclopedia, kind of like DC's Who's Who. Um, but I don't have the time to write it. Like, would you be interested in doing that? And I was like, yes, obviously. Um, so that was actually my first published thing, which was the Black Hammer Encyclopedia. Um, and then a little bit after that, actually what happened is he ran a Twitter poll being like, who, which Black Hammer character should get a spinoff next? And it was like Golden Gale, Barbalian, Abraham Slam, whoever. And Golden Gale won. And I was like, this is this is bullshit. Barbalia needs a, a series. So then I DM'd him um, and was like, you should do a Barbalian comic. And it should be, he was like a superhero in the 80s. He's a cop. He's queer. Like during the AIDS crisis, he's in a major city. Like that is, there's so much story potential. Like you need, like you should do this story. Like I told him to write it. And he was like, give me a second. And then he calls me and he's like, Tate, you're going to write that comic and Gabriel Walta's going to draw it. And I was like, what? <laughs> I like, dropped my phone. Um, so then he, that was like, he like gave me the shot to write this book, um, which I immediately started crapping my pants because I'm like, I just walked into like having to write like this queer historical AIDS crisis book that's also a superhero comic in like a, in like a world of comics that hasn't been super forgiving to queer comics. Um, and AIDS crisis comics. There's like <laughs> comics 
It, like mainstream comics is horrible um, when it comes to that stuff. So I was stressed and I worked very hard on it. And I'm like, just very, very proud of that book. It's a, it's um, a beautiful book. It's, it's a, the, the characterization and of course, Gabriel's a phenomenal artist. Um, while we were cool. talking, I texted Philip and just said, we just had a full conversation about how sweet you are with uh, Isaac and Tate. And he replied, oh, they're the sweetest boys. Tell them I love them. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I want to come to Christopher. I don't know where... oh, oh, please go ahead. Yeah, no, no, sorry. I I don't know where I got cut off, but I just wanted to be like, Jordi Belair like, deserves all, all the laurels. Like She was always surprising us, and it's so beautiful um, because of her and just like Gabrielle Walters' work as well. So, yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful book. Everybody, please check it out. Uh, Taylor, uh, I would love to just give you the same uh, question. What is your origin story as a comics fan? Uh, as a comics fan, uh, I think X-Men animated series is kind of what really drove things home for me. Um, but I, I think my first comic was actually, um, I think I was like probably three or four. And it was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles read along. So I had like a cassette tape that would read the comic with me, um, which I've always loved. Uh, Ninja Turtles, April O'Neil actually inspired my career choice. Um, so that's kind of over overview of, of do you want to Do you want to tell everybody about your day job? It's kind of great. <laughs> So, well, my former day job was a TV news reporter, um, TV news anchor. Right now I do PR instead. I went to the dark side, as everyone tells me. Um, <laughs> but ironically, so like hearing Tate's story, I feel like we started the same. So I majored in TV as well, um, took some screenwriting classes, did really well in them. But I think I got kind of overwhelmed and taken by the fear of, "Ooh, this is a really hard path. I don't know how to get into this. I don't know how to make these connections. You know, mm -hmm. uh, always been a writer, always tried to, I'm still trying to finish a novel. I think all my friends are kind of tired of hearing that, oh, he's working on his novel again. This has been promised for 20 years and we still haven't read it. So um, I always just enjoyed pop culture and stories. Um, and I think that's kind of why I've related to the X-Men so well is because it's just a bunch of messy family drama. Um, and with, you know, lots of action and sprinkled in. Um, favorite character is Jean Grey. She has a quick appearance in the issue that we're going to talk about later. Um, I have some strong feelings about it, but I'll save that. <laughs> Excellent. I'm excited for those strong feelings. Uh, but yes, soap <laughs> opera and action is always a good formula. Uh, now, a book that is pretty new to me, I'm, I'm, I'm making myself more familiar with all of the queer books out there currently. Uh, and because I read a lot for this show, I have to pace myself, obviously. But I've been reading uh, Something is Killing the Children more recently, which is great. I just read The Department of Truth. Uh, and this week, I read The Oddly Pedestrian Life of Christopher Chaos, which is wonderful. I saw one review when I was looking this up that described this book as Invincible Meets Doom Patrol which was a, an interesting uh, uh, flavor to start it with because I read the review before I picked up the book. But it's great. It's really fun. The Pigeon is my favorite character <laughs> just because it's so Thank unexpected. <laughs> uh, talk to us about this book a little bit. I uh, I love the team of you two working together on this. Uh, uh, Tate, do you want to start that one? Sure. Yeah. No, Isaac and I have just quickly become best friends because of this book. So it's <laughs> Um. Yeah, basically um, what happened is James approached me after working with him on House of Slaughter. Um, he asked if I wanted to do another book with him because he had just gotten the Substack grant to be a Substack Pro. Um, and he had to create some comics to put on there. So he came to me with one of 
it was actually like an old pitch of his that he had passed around a few times, um, but publishers hadn't hadn't bit. Um, so he he asked me if I wanted another series with him. I was like, yes, of course. He gave me the pitch. It had the title, which is a title he's had in his pocket since he was like 21 in college or something. Um, and then he said, this is my base idea. Like, take it wherever you want. Like, he wanted me to expand on it. He wanted me to change it up. However, he wanted to make it mine. Like, he wanted me to make it mine as well. He didn't want it to just be, like, me telling his story. Um, so I took that the story prompts um, and did a ton of research, read a bunch of books, watched a bunch of movies, and then kind of pulled together a Bible of all my ideas and thoughts um, and what I would do with the story. Um, but, yeah, it... it the story itself is basically, it's about a teenage mad scientist named Christopher Chaos, who has like felt alone his entire life. He's always created like kind of against his own, his own, um, I don't know. He, he, he gets, he's lost in his head a lot. He feels like a monster and he like can't help building things and creating things um, like mad inventions. And every time he does it, people get hurt or, or injured or he's like ridiculed um, or he blows up his friends' houses. So he... <laughs> I like, uh, if I can interject quickly, I like his yeah. chaotic energy a lot. I love how when the doors are closed, he becomes himself in a way. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. when the doors are open, he's someone else. This character for X-Men fans, this character gives a little bit of curse vibes. If you're familiar with the modern uh, take on curse, who's the character that whenever she wishes for something, it happens. But if she wishes for something bad, good things happen to her. If she wishes for something good, bad things happen to her. There's a little bit of that vibe with this guy. He's a little chaotic. Uh, I keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about him and then quickly um, realizing that he's not alone in the world, that there's actually other monstrous beings or these weirdos. Or like, he, well, the first person he sees is the boy in school he has a crush on named Hayden. He follows him into the woods and is like, what's he doing in the woods? And then realizes he's a werewolf. Um, so it's basically Christopher, this mad scientist, realizing he's in a world of monsters and monsters are being hunted and like kept in the shadows. Like boys like him are being kept in the shadows. Um, uh, so then it's just him finding his people and like finding other monsters and trying to like find their place in the world and fight back against these monster hunters and like other evil doers um, as things develop. And the other cool thing that's um, that we're just kind of setting up slowly is that we are kind of doing like we're studying horror history alongside queer history in a really cool way just because the genre um and queer people are so tethered in many ways um so like in our book like frankenstein's monster is real dracula is real all of those original universal monsters like they're all kind of eventually be revealed in a series um but it's really about setting up this new generation of monsters um in the shadow of like um those past monsters as well Isaac, you are drawing the hell out of this book, obviously, but there's a lot of sequential stuff. There's a lot of character building stuff, but then crazy monster action as well. What type of research did you put in to get the monsters right? Oh, well, all the heavy lifting was done for me, to be perfectly honest. So I cannot accept that compliment, <laughs> as nice as it is. But um, uh, James enlisted uh, the great Nick Robles uh, to do the character design. So... Nick, who is one of the great visualists of our generation, designed these remarkable characters, and all the character sheets are saved on my desktop, so I'm literally looking at his work every single day, and I have a 
newfound appreciation and respect for that man. Um, so as far as the characters go, all of that was said. And he's still our, he's our ongoing character designer. So we've got new characters in the second arc that I'm looking at that he just finished and just sent us. He's got these like new takes, those werewolf transformation that he and Tate developed together. So I have that sequence. Um, and it's really new and it's a new way of uh, werewolf transfer transformation. And it's, it's exciting and it's gross and it's scary. That's all Nick and Tate. So um, I don't got to research nothing. I'm just drawing the way I want to draw. <laughs> <laughs> and you're drawing it beautifully as well. Character design is, is and like the fashion of characters is a whole different uh, skill set. Uh, yeah, for sure. You got to draw everything and anything all the time. <laughs> Okay, but Isaac does bring the fashion to the book. Like, if you see our characters, um, Viv and Jordy, they have, like, new outfits every issue. And especially Viv. Like, Isaac, I feel like, is living out his fashion dreams just with Viv. <laughs> so is Isaac responsible? So Chad mentioned that Christopher was kind of reminiscent of Curse, but, like, first look to me is just, that's a Jubilee aesthetic, right? Like, the pink shirt and, like, the yellow Very, yeah. jacket. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of that, like people dressed as Jubilee on the floor and then people going to them and be like, are you Christopher Chaos? Or like the reverse. People are dressed <laughs> as Christopher and they're like, are you Jubilee? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I can see that. What are some of your professional aspirations? Uh, you guys are thriving. I, I assume you're doing well. I don't know your personal stories, but uh, your names are out there. You're working on books regularly. What are the, some of the things you would love to see happen for you in 2024? That's such a good question. I'll start. <laughs> uh, actually, Taylor, you should start. I feel like we've been monopolizing the conversation. No, I honestly, it's been amazing to me just to sit here and kind of listen about the process. Like as someone who would love to one day be, you know, creating something again. Um, it's been awesome. Just listen. So I think for me, aspirations for 2024 um, would be just to write more and to kind of just really lean into that itch um, more than just the casual, you know, idea session. I think I've outlined so many chapters in my life um, and just random ideas and whatnot. So would love to kind of get some more practice in. Yeah. Uh, Isaac, how about you? Uh, well, I definitely want to do that as well, Taylor. I want to just draw faster. So that's a big one. Um, I mean, I'm, I try to express gratitude, as woo-woo as that sounds. I'm working on a comic book <laughs> that I care about with my friends. It's the most remarkable, privileged life I can... All I do, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour is on streaming now, so I'm just watching that over and over again while drawing Christopher <laughs> Chaos. Like, how much better can I ask for my life to be? You know what I mean? Like, but, but, like, I mean, at the same time, I am very, like, ambitious, and I've got, like... Michael Jordan trading cards taped up on my bathroom mirror. Like I have that kind of like, I gotta be the best at everything mentality too. So I'm trying to balance those two like very different perspectives. But the, I would like to, I want Christopher Chaos to be big. I want, I want people to read it. I'm so proud of it. I believe in the story. I want it to reach as many people as possible. And I want to continue on this for as long as we can go. Like, but but very truly, working with Tate, working with James, um, our editor Greg, our colorist Mikel Muerto, who is brilliant, um, 
it doesn't get better than this. It like professionally, it just in terms of feeling fulfilled, it this is this is as this is as far this is as good as it gets. So um I want I'm a therapist in my day job, and I so regularly work with people who are like trying to figure out their relationship with their jobs. Hearing that from anyone always makes my heart sing. Like I'm doing what I love, and I'm paying the bills doing it, and I'm like hanging out with my friends. Like that's the best thing I could hear, no matter what your what, no matter what your dream is. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's really cool. Hey, I have two therapists. One of them's got me tapping my collarbone, and we're talking about childhood stuff. Like, I'm not like well adjusted. All right, but um, but uh, yeah. So maybe that's my goal is to become well adjusted for 2024. But I will say, um, we've got a big, big. I'm gonna tease this now. A really big thing coming to Christopher Chaos. I can't talk about it. It just got okayed by the higher ups, and it is. Big. And I've been saying to people, if you read one thing from me ever and only one thing, please let it be this story that's coming out. Um, so stay tuned. That won't be announced for another couple of months, but I promise it'll be worth the wait. I I so I'm already. High. Oh, I'm sorry. Please, Taylor, go ahead. Tate, no, during that thing, whenever Isaac was like, I got something that I can't talk about, but, he, but like Tate's eyebrows were just like climbing to his hairline. Like he was so unsure of what was about to happen. Yeah, so he was about to yell at me, which is what that was. <laughs> if we were in the same room, he'd be kicking my leg under the table. Uh, Tate, how about you? Professional aspirations for this year? Um, I also like how Isaac was saying, I feel like so incredibly blessed <clears throat> to be like where I am in my career. Um, I'm coming up to in February, I think it'll be three years of like, um, working professionally in comics. Um, so I just like, I feel like so blessed and grateful to be where I am. Um, and this book, Christopher Chaos, especially is just like, we're all pouring our hearts into it. Um, so I want to continue just like doing the best work I can for that book. Um, the other big thing is in 2024, my first work at DC is coming out. Um, I'm doing, I'm part of their new Elseworlds relaunch. I'm doing a book with um, Werther, Deladera, uh, Green Lantern Dark, which will be like a horror Green Lantern book, which so that I am the most excited for. So I just want to like nail that. And it's my first big two work. So I just want to be like um, doing the best I can for that um, and just getting my footing in that kind of world. Um, so yeah. I'm very excited for that. The closeted kid in me that fell in love with comics in the first place, seeing like out gay creators and gay characters and gay stories and so many options. Like I regularly uh, regularly land in this energy on this show, but it just it makes me so happy to see these things happening and to be raising kids, one of whom has come out as gay uh, in a world where I can show them these comics and share these things with them. It's a very different place now. Yeah, uh, I definitely. Oh, oh, please. Oh, sorry, I was just. I was gonna say that, like, I I can feel myself like being on like the shoulders of giants. As cliche as that sounds, just like how many creators and people across decades have like gotten the industry to this point, um, and like media in general to this point. Um, so I'm so grateful to that and all of that. Um, I've even like talked. I've talked to Steve Orlando so much about it. I'm like, I remember reading Midnighter and being like, I can't believe this, and then. Steve's reply was like, now nah, you're making me feel old. But I was like, no, that's made me like all like just their work and like 
um, even though like that feels recent, I'm like how quickly things have started moving and like just being more acceptable and the stories being told has been so incredible. Steve Orlando and I had a full on text conversation today about whose hair is going grayer faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he's obsessed. <laughs> um, so we're going to shift the conversation to X-Men for a minute. This is the place where we gather uh, around the campfire of the X-Men on this show. Uh, where is your origin story with the X-Men uh, for each of you? Uh, Taylor, you shared it was uh, the animated series and kind of Jean Grey. What is, uh, what is your sweet spot for this uh, franchise? Um, oh, sweet spot for the franchise. I feel like it's kind of a moving target, right? Um, I feel like, you know, I will go through phases where I'm really into stuff from the 80s, um, stuff from the 90s. Krakoa, I know it's kind of an unpopular opinion among a lot of folks. Um, but whenever All New X-Men started, I loved that. Um, mostly, I think, because it was a Gene story, even though I think, you know, some folks have some... Uh, some and feeling a, and about a good being, Gene story. It was great. It was. It was great. And we hadn't had a Gene story in like 15 plus years. And I was upset for that entire time after... Um, she was killed off in, in Morrison's run. Um, so, but I think kind of the the silver lining of that, of, you know, I got into comics, like really buying them and collecting them during Morrison's era, where I was finally kind of old enough to have some of my own money and whatnot. Um, and she was killed off and I was very upset. Um, but those, the years that followed that, I really kind of got to see some of the other characters grow and kind of get in touch um, with them. That being said, whenever X-Men Red launched, a few years back um that was kind of like the book of my heart right like i was just so excited and and tom taylor is fantastic i, I read a lot of his stuff so and the modern x-men read as well uh yes, we're doing uh, a, yeah we're doing a gene gray trial on my show in february there's going to be some good conversation so uh, i know i told you it's my birthday present <laughs> don't say i didn't ever got you anything exactly <laughs> isaac and tate same question uh do you have a a, a a personal relationship with the X-Men as fans? Yeah, I mean, Taylor, I suspect you and I are are close in age because I grew up with that animated series too. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was like, it was all like, for me, it was mostly the trading cards, honestly. I had all the Fleer Ultra, like I still have them. You, like if- Same. <laughs> like it- it's taking me so much self-control not to run into my closet to like pull out my two binders <laughs> of them. Like I have, I'm so proud of them. Even no, now, I know so exactly cool. where mine are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it, that led to the action figures. I, I don't think I ever really watched the, um, uh, the animated series as much just because my family, we were in temple every Saturday morning. Um, so I didn't get to watch the cartoon as much but um as far as the comics go i had issues here and there the first one that i started collecting was the um the astonishing x-men relaunch uh which was a kitty pride story and i just love kitty pride i love that she was this nice uh young jewish girl and um, i always uh, I, I always think of that time colossus fucked her so hard she phased through the floor <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that isn't that issue no, yeah. that's great <laughs> or that run oh wow i completely forgot about that um and, uh and and now i i'm sad that you reminded me and um then i uh left x-men uh like and just didn't think about it again but i was following bendis's career religiously um 
uh, Steve Fox to bring him up again. He calls me a pathological Bendis fan. So when he was on All New X Men, is that the run you were talking about, Taylor? Yeah, the Gene story. Yeah, That's so I was also, yeah, for me too. I was just like, oh, this is the best because I was just so in love with anything uh, Bendis wrote, and still mm-hmm. am. He's he's my hero. He's the reason that I'm in this industry at all. Just like growing up reading Ultimate Spider Man and. Just yeah. loving everything they did. Kitty Pride dated Pete, Ultimate Peter Parker is like the the best. It was the best, right? It, and yeah. like, like I don't think I've ever had like I don't know if I'll ever get those feelings again reading comics, you know. But you know, like when you're in your formative years and you're seeing these characters and they're doing these things that make you so excited, like that that is the kind of excitement that'll change your life. So. Um, the the Bendis run with Stuart Immin and all new X Men. I just it was like I, I'm shocked that people don't talk about this obsessively the way they do Dark Knight Returns and Ultimate Spider Man and Watchmen. Like it's like the greatest, most bombastic operatic X Men story I've ever read. I love it. I love it so much. Well, so it sounds like a a train wreck whenever it like whenever I remember when it was first kind of pitched and and, and teased like bringing the old X-Men back. And we're like, I was like, that's weird. Like, that's, you know, different. And then it came out and I was, yeah, I was obsessed. I think I was a little, a minute ago, kind of apprehensive. You know, I love Bendis too. I, I think it broke my heart the other day. I was in the comic book store and I heard the comic book shop owner talking um, with a, a another customer and he was like, oh, you know, Bendis, da, 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 da. And I was like, no, that's I, like, like, you know, everyone has their flaws and whatnot. But like, I just, I don't know. That was a, just a really great era for me. Uh, yeah. and, and Kitty, I'll just note, has had four boyfriends named Peter, which is hilarious. To me. <laughs> She's got a type. If you're if you're white and your name is Peter, watch out. Uh, Tate, how about you? Um, yeah, the X Men are basically why I'm doing what I'm doing, um, and why I read comics or am a geek at all because I and it was the movies that did it for me. Um, I saw them. I don't know if it was the movie or X-Men Evolution that I saw first, but they both were coming out at the same time. And I was fully obsessed, like especially X-Men Evolution. I was just like the perfect age for it. I was I would watch every episode, even though like those versions of the characters like do not line up with the comics at all. Um, just like the ages and like some of the personalities. Um but I adored it. Um, and I loved the movies. I even like went to see like X-Men The Last Stand for like um, a birthday, but I was young and I was like, but Beast was so cool. It's fine, guys. Don't worry about the plot. <laughs> and like the weird <laughs> stuff they did with Gene. Um, but yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, X-Men 2 was just like one of my favorite movies as a kid. I watched it so many times. Um, and then that's like, so then I remember seeing the movies, watching the show, and like going on marvel.com and being like, what X-Men book comic can I get? Um, and at that time it was um, new X-Men with like the Academy kit, Academy X kids by Craig Kyle and Chris Yost. Um, and I was like, perfect. Cause I was like around that age. Um, so I, and I wanted like a teen X-Men book. Uh, so I grabbed those, I think it was like issue 32. Oh, so it this was is the, like right was, after you've fallen in love with the characters and now they're like wholesale slaughtering them in every issue. Yes, <laughs> yes. So it was the issue. It was the issue when um, Stryker 
is infiltrating the school. That's a rough first issue, man. I know. And it ends with spoiler if no one's read it, but like Elixir like goes like grabs him and like kills him. And immediately Elixir became like my favorite. <laughs> so, like to this day, I'm just like, I love Elixir, which I was, I was like, he's part of the five. Look, look, look at my boy. Um, but yeah, so I, that was my, like, I love that book. I picked up Uncanny X-Men when Brubaker was writing it. Um, and then I just started buying like all the backlog. Um, X-Men, um, man, why am I forgetting the? Is it man love? God kills. God love. God man loves kills. man kills. God loves man kills. <laughs> that became like incredibly formative. I was in like the eighth grade, like reading that and being like, like this is what like superhero comics can do. Um. So yeah, I'm I love the X Men very much. Um, I'm scared. Are... Like, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say that I am. I like ever since I was a kid, like I've wanted to write the X-Men, but I don't know if I do now, <laughs> like maybe someday, but I'm just like, I, I am a fan. So I'm part of the fan base, but I am terrified to write these characters. My first <laughs> issue I ever picked up and I recently reread it for the first time in many years was X-Force number 27, which is the Rainfire story where they kidnap Henry Peter Gyrick with the attempt to murder him because they're trying to make a, a political statement about mutants. And rereading as an, an adult, I'm like, that'd be like them capturing like uh, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> like taking him out to an island and pointing a gun at his head. It was it was really bold and there was way more queer subtext than I knew at the time. I'm definitely older than all of you. So I was reading it a different era. Uh, the uh, the animated series was also part of my childhood, but like my older teen childhood. <laughs> so um, we're going to transition into Amazing Adventures number 12 in just a moment. I'm going to presume this is the first time reading this particular issue for all of you. Uh, this is a new era of comics. And I, I got to point this out in my interview with Steve Englehart, which will accompany this uh, episode. But the kids that the 60s books were being written for, like the, the silly, campy 60s books, are now the kids being drafted into the Vietnam War, right? The country's in a very different place. We've landed on the moon. The tech has changed. The tone has changed. People aren't trusting the government anymore. We're like in the middle of Vietnam and hippies and uh, civil rights and government protests. Uh, so previously in Amazing Adventures on Greymalk and Lane, Henry McCoy left the X-Men to take a job at the shady government-connected genetic research firm, The Brand Corporation, which is a thinly veiled parody of the real-life Rand Corporation. They just put a B on the front. He started a relationship with the gorgeous research assistant, Linda Donaldson, who gives us very Bond villain energy, uh, while isolating the cause of genetic mutation in a single serum. Uh, it works kind of like mutant growth hormone. If you drink it, it gives you powers for a while. That's what it seems to be. But he drinks it because they're spies from the Nazi KKK secret empire guys and uh, ends up transforming himself into a beast. Uh, he ends up uh, he ends up seeing a guy named Dr. Maddox, who's his rival there, who Linda murders at the end of the issue. And Beast is now trapped in this kind of blue gray. Well, it's, it's gray at first and kind of gets bluer over time. Uh, this particular issue... On the cover, we have Beast standing over the body of Iron Man. It is a new creative team. Steve Englehart is here with uh, Tom Sutton on pencil still. Mike Plug is on inks. Artie Simic on letters. And Stan Lee as editor. Whenever we introduce a new creator to the show, I like to give just a little bio. 
Uh, Mike Plug is still alive. He is 83. You probably know him if you're a Marvel fan at, from his work on Man-Thing, Monster of Frankenstein, Werewolf by Night, Ghost Rider. So he's got some uh, connections to Christopher Chaos there, just different interpretations of these monsters. Uh, he also worked on classic animation for Hanna-Barbera, which are like the Grape Ape and Underdog and Flintstones cartoons that I grew up loving. Uh, before he had a long apprenticeship with Will Eisner. Uh, he's an extraordinary artist. I think this is his only time ever working on an X-Men book, however. Uh, I would love to hear what it was like before we get into the content of the book. What was it like for each of you to delve into this early 70s uh, insanity? What was this issue like for each of you? Tate, you start. Um, I enjoyed it overall. I was didn't know what to expect. It's a trip. The ending <laughs> threw me. I was like, what? Of course. Um, and then love the twist with the sexy blonde uh, villain who he doesn't really seem that into. <laughs> like, seems a bit performative. Um, and I loved just the push and pull of him in this like monstrous form. It just, it feels very fitting to what we're doing in Christopher Chaos because it's like him now as a monster and like, but he kind of feels like a, a truer version of himself. Um, so I was mostly seeing it through that lens. I was like, honestly, we should take, we should use some of this for Christopher Chaos. Like, I love that that first page is so good. Like, I want Isaac keep like screenshot that. We're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna use that. Um, so I, I found a lot of things that I really liked about it. Um, I love that he go, he goes into full human drag. Love that. <laughs> Um, so I was just, yeah, I, I, I had a, I was chuckling to myself through a lot of it. <laughs> uh, Taylor, what was it like for you to pick up this book? It, you know, I, after kind of talking with you, Sam, and looking at some of the old sixties and seventies books, like there's a lot of fun to be had. Like sometimes they're a little bit, um, heavy. There's a pretty text heavy sometimes, which I think doesn't necessarily translate as well to maybe modern readers, just because I think, um, you know, a lot of the description of what's happening isn't something that I see a lot and stuff. You know, the first line's talking about, like, incued clouds. Um, and I, I kind of enjoy that sort of writing sometimes because it, it helps stimulate a, a different part of your brain when you're looking at a comic. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I think I enjoyed it. I liked it. There was a... a I always am impressed by... Or kind of not impressed, but bewildered about, you know, they are very much drawn as if they're adults. Um, but sometimes there's parts that just show their youth, like Hank being like, oh, I love I, I like her. I don't love her. I like her. You know, like it, it's just very like teenager vibes or like early college vibes. Um, but he doesn't look like that. He looks like a full grown man. Um, so it's just very interesting to kind of think about, you know, for the audience at the time. They were younger, but they wanted to see older characters so you can aspire to be those characters. I don't know. It was a lot to think about. Um, and yeah, the ending was just kind of <laughs> what happened. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, Isaac, what are your thoughts on uh, on Tom, Tom Sutton's pencils? Uh, you know, you know what's so interesting about Tom Sutton? So um, I got very fascinated too. I'm grateful for the fact that you, Chad, and Every time you uh, introduce a new creator, you give a little bit of biography. I was on this man's Wikipedia because I was very unfamiliar with his work. So I was just like, oh, this is great. And I wanted to like know more about him. And um, I thought I knew like every comic book artist that came before me. You know, I think a lot of us do uh, think that for whatever reason. And uh, I just 
I wasn't familiar with him. So I wanted to, so I did a little bit of research into him and like even like his personal life. And um, I did also read the previous issue just to see, and I don't know, because it's a, actually a different inker whose name escapes me right now, but it wasn't Mike Fluke inking Tom Sutton's work in the previous issue. And it looks very different, actually. Yeah, um, in, the, in the previous issue, it was Sid Shores. Okay, yes, thank you. So, um, so I was very fascinated by that and to see like um, uh, how different um, his work can, can look with two different inkers, embellishers. So that was very interesting to me. Um, some of the background work that he's doing, some of the, the sci-fi doodads and gadgetry that he's doing is really remarkable. Tate was talking about, oh, we got to steal this for Christopher Chaos. I'm right there with you, buddy. Way ahead of you. <laughs> On page seven, I made a mental note of it. There's a lot of crazy, like, late 60s, early 70s sci-fi stuff going on that looks like a lot of fun. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll definitely be stealing this. So um, it's great. I love it. You know, um, a, I love this aesthetic and I miss it. It's a sure. really fun. There's a lot of really solid backgrounds, uh, which was kind of customary of the time. There's lots of like bright oranges and greens and yellows, like blocking the back of things. But this is really good art. And I when I started this review, uh, I thought these would be kind of silly stories, but there's actually a lot of depth to them. Hank losing his youth and his innocence. Uh, Hank becoming a monster, which has like completely changed the character. 60s Hank is funny. He's the big bouncy guy with the feet and the big words. But this is a completely different character. Uh, and one of the X-Men's being used. This is during a time when no one was using any of the X-Men. They were just toys in the toy box. So we're going to open this issue up. Uh, on page one, I will begin. We uh, see a full page shot of the Beast in his tiny black briefs, uh, walking on some wires in the rain and just like taking up the whole damn page. He looks scary. It's a really blocky kind of muscly, thick, uh, like uh, a beautiful image, but he's very scary. The The way they draw this beast, there's a lot of werewolf energy, but it's like he's stuck as the wolf, you know? Uh, he thinks of how the humans will never stop hunting him and trying to kill him. He says, the humans hated me when I was only a mutant. They must be terrified of me now. On page two, he continues, mutants. Sure, that's what we X-Men were, and mankind despised us for our superiority because we were the unknown. Still, we were like a happy family wherever we uh, were together, whenever we were together, excuse me. I felt really sad the day I left them, and I came to think of this think tank as in my alter ego to study the chemical causes of my fate, mutation. At first, it went great. I loved my work, and I loved, uh, liked Linda, the girl assigned to assist me. <laughs> they were fucking guys. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought I was leaving behind my insecurities, my hangups, and becoming a man at last. Uh, he recounts drinking the potion. Now he's stuck as a monster. On page three, we see Beast, uh, who can feel Jean Grey and Professor X trying to enter his thoughts, and he tells them to leave him alone. Uh, he can do things on his own. And Jean notes that Hank was the only one that Xavier has allowed to leave the X-Men school. And Xavier reminds her that the X-Men have mostly had to stay in hiding ever since they had that big fight in uh, Las Vegas with the Hulk. And also apparently Cerebro is malfunctioning. Uh, let me pause here. Taylor, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Jean Grey uh, in her only appearance in this issue. I just hate that bottom panel in the middle because it's, it's just <laughs> such a common trope for Jean back in the day where she's just very damsel in distress she's distraught she's you know um hysterical almost and i just i i know it's kind of a product of the time 
Um, but I also hate the line where she said, you know, Beast is the only one of us that you've allowed to leave. Um, I'm not a Professor X fan. I it just he, there's just something that just doesn't vibe with me. And that very much played into that bias that I have. Um, the camera cuts away and he's like making all the X-Men dance for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then like, you know, Gene in theory should be the one that can like stand up for everyone and, and break away from him and defeat him and, and whatnot. And she's just kind of sort of brainwashed in this issue. So but, but I was also, happy to see her, but not at the same time. But also perhaps the reason he let Beast leave is because he took a job working at a genetic research corporation with connections to the government. And Xavier's always looking for <laughs> <laughs> for secrets yeah. he can keep. Yeah. I, I, um, Hank breaks in on page four to the brand corporation. And as he is doing this, he uh, uh, his dialogue says, now, just a second, Hank, none of this down in the mouth stuff. You've got a job to do, building a new life. You have to keep living and you can do it. But how? How can I explain to the others what's happened to me? Answer, I can't. They must want me for attempted murder now. And I know from experience what humans do to every to anyone who is different. Uh, because in the previous issue, he thought he had killed a guard. Uh, then he goes, I'll have to cover up. I'll have to disguise myself. Sure, I'll have to look like Hank McCoy in order to get to my lab and find a cure. It'll be the craziest, riskiest game I've ever played. And if I make just one slip, it'll be all over for me. This man could have done anything. He could have run away. He could have gone to <laughs> Xavier or the Avengers or the Fantastic Four for help. But his solution is to break into a library, steal a book called The Art of Makeup, then break into a costume shop as he thinks, funny, I don't feel like using all those big words anymore. If I weren't insane, I'd say I feel more secure now than I ever did as an X-Man. Uh, then he uses his monstrous hands to create latex masks, makeup, a wig, modeling wax to make a face that looks like his that he can then wear over his fur. Then he uses casting plaster and more latex to make hands to wear over his monster hands. Now, have any of you ever worn a latex mask? They do not fit the face well. They certainly do not form to the face well. And they are very, very creepy. There's eye holes and a mouth hole. Even professional Hollywood makeup artists would struggle to make this man look like a human. But he's just hanging out with a big old monster fur paws, like making this mask. It's ridiculous. And I love it so much. Uh, tell me your thoughts on Beast's costume here. Well, he got that trusty book. The book had that secret knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> that he stole from the library. You just need the right book. That's, a, that's all he needed. <laughs> And not bad for the first time. I mean, he fooled uh, his girlfriend, right? You know, I mean, I think that just goes to show how talented he is. So you're going on a date and you're dating a guy that has a big beard and like he's very fuzzy, but he pulls a latex mask over the full beard and then is like, kiss me. Is This isn't going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> there's Everyone a has their thing. No shame. There's a comment from Vera Cantor, Beast's girlfriend, in a later comic where she talks about how he always leaves blue fur in the drain. But I prefer that to this weird latex mask look for him. It's a very strange thing. This must have been before image inducers were invented. That's the thing, you know, like right. Nightcrawler used to use to go out in public. Uh, ridiculous. Uh, any thoughts from anyone on these first five pages before we continue? Uh, Isaac, will you take us through the next section of the book? Tell us what happens. Sure. So now Hank is in his boy drag and in this sequence, which is very dramatic and I love it very well. He, um, it's not enough to look like a man. He has to make himself straight again, very literally. And it's 
pretty heavy-handed subtext. <laughs> Seems like a strong <laughs> metaphor, and it is fantastic. Um, so he he gets all these leather straps <laughs> attached to his body, and my favorite panel is the second panel where it looks as though either he put the straps in underneath his underwear or he took off his underwear, put the leather straps on and then put his underwear back on and they didn't put that scene in. And that's what- (laughs) He's fully furry wearing only his briefs, but also his face mask and his like plastic hands. And then like (laughs) strapping himself up. uh, I mean, it's just so bizarre and he's so dramatic. So, and he's just like, He's like, oh, he's in, he's struggling so much. He breaks his desk. Um, and then, and then, and then at the end of the sequence, he proclaims it worked. I'm a man again, which fantastic. Good for you, buddy. And then there's a final panel, which is completely unnecessary. And the comic artist storyteller part of my brain goes, you could have just cut this panel out. Like, it is so <laughs> unnecessary. It's just a random panel of Beast back as the Beast taking a nap. It makes no <laughs> sense. You could have cut it out. And the scene works fine. But anyway, so we got a panel of the Beast taking a nap. And then uh, it cuts to the next scene. Now we're on page seven. He's at the brand's Is it a laboratory? Brand um, Corporation, yeah corporation and uh nobody knows that he's the beast and he's eavesdropping and then he's in his lab and he's yelling at interns and he's uh trying to i guess find the formula that's going to turn him back into a real human um he gets a call from his boss who says hey you've got a big time visitor and he's a little perturbed by it uh, but then we find out in the next page, we're on eight, that Tony Stark and his fiance Marianne Rogers, are coming um, to meet Hank. So, And um, as a quick side note, Marianne Rogers is a character from the Iron Man books. She's a psychic. She has like psychic premonition. She eventually goes crazy and ends up in a mental institution. She hasn't been used a whole bunch, but this is one of her rare appearances outside an Iron Man book here. Really? Well... That's surprising because they're engaged. So uh, <laughs> you're not acting like it. <laughs> um, Tony, Tony says to Hank that uh, he's he's trying to expand his company. He's very interested in his genetic research. Um, and then they are interrupted by Linda, uh, who may be an agent of nefarious intention. We're not sure. Do you know, Chad? Can you fill me in? Yeah, yeah. She's a Nazi. <laughs> Okay, so she's a Nazi. So Nefarious is what she is. There's a really famous storyline. I'll take just a sec here. We'll explore this later this year on my show in Captain America, in which Steve Englehart, the same writer of this book, uh, tells a story during kind of Watergate-y stuff where Nixon is implied to be the leader of a group called the Secret Empire, which is literally hooded people who like, it looks like the Ku Klux Klan, but they're Nazis and they're trying to wipe out mutants and take over the government. It's very Trumpy. And at the end of the storyline, Nixon, again, it's implied to be Nixon, commits suicide and Captain America refuses to be Captain America anymore. Uh, we're getting there in, uh, in, in, uh, on my show later this year. This lady is an agent of that organization. Mm, gotcha gotcha okay so she wants to have lunch with hank um uh tony and linda they flirt a little bit and marianne her psychic her espers she calls it her radar is going going off she's like this 
this lady, she's bad news. Don't like her. I think she is evil. And um, when Linda says, she says something very passive aggressive. Oh, I found it. A girl's got to expect to take a backseat to business. It's in my Norman Mailer handbook book for unliberated women. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> um, she's now my favorite character. So, um, so she leaves. And that's when Marianne says, I think she's evil. Hank gets upset, so he punches his machinery and leaves. Uh, Tony Stark says, this looks like a job for Iron Man, uh, because I believe you, Marianne, and your espers. And that's it for them. So then it cuts to Hank chasing after Linda and saying, hey, I'd rather get lunch with you than talk to Tony Stark any day. And um, she says, let's sit on this bench. And that's the end of page 10. (laughs) <laughs> there's a there's a moment when uh when uh Marianne is upset with Tony for flirting with Linda. Uh you know, so I don't like her basically. And Tony goes, "Whoa, sweetheart, do I detect a tiny gleam of green in those baby blues?" Listen, Marianne, you've got me where you want me. Excuse me. You've got me where I want me. Don't start getting upset because my old playboy life won't uh won't lie down and die. Fuck this guy, man. That's how you treat your family. I that line. I hated it. <laughs> Yeah, that was rough. <laughs> um, I would love to hear, Isaac, your thoughts on Marianne's dress. It's my favorite character in this issue. I noticed the, the dress is your favorite character. Yeah, let's get that dress a spinoff. Um, I did <laughs> notice the dress, and I do very, I do love it very, very much. I miss I miss all this, like, 1960s fashion. I think my, like, my personal style just kind of uh, uh, trends towards, like, 70s, 60s anyway. So, um, yeah, I love this, like, weird striped green and black dress with the yellow necklace it really and and it's very like short weirdly for no reason so um like yeah, it's very fantastic. short yeah yeah it's like, very uh, short like yeah. her coochie's hanging out <laughs> but you know what work you know she's doing it there's a if you guys have ever seen barry there's a particular episode of barry where uh his girlfriend sally's in the room on the phone and she's like very self-absorbed he literally like has a bunch of like gunshots come out of from out the window the room is like ridden with bullets and like feathers are flying in the air and plaster and sally comes in and like doesn't notice anything has happened she's like barry do you think i'm like it just makes it about her that's the only way I can reason with this. Linda is so absorbed with her like mission. She's not even noticing Hank there. They're on the beach, like the bench sitting next to each other. And she doesn't realize there's a latex mask or like fur <laughs> happening. I uh, That's the only way I can make sense of this scene. I uh, do love the that pose on the, the last panel of page 10, the way she's saying next to Hank. It's so extra. <laughs> it's so unnecessary. And it's perfect. Like no notes. This is a great drawing. She she goes, you're not sweating. And he goes, well, I keep in shape. And besides, I only sweat on alternate Thursdays. And she's like, uh, do you want to go fuck? Like, <laughs> you know he's sweating under that, though. Like, that's what I was seeing the entire time. Is I was like, there's no way this man is not reeking. Like, deodorant, bitch. Like, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tate, did you have any thoughts on this, like, second section? Um, I love that page 10 panel four where it like is the only image where Hank does look like he's wearing a latex mask. (laughs) 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 As he's running. Um, Yeah, no, I love, I love the introduction of Marianne. I was obsessed with, I didn't know she had espers or her psychic powers. So when that twist came in, I was like, of course she does. (laughs) 
Uh, take, take us through the next section of the book. Tell us what happens. Yeah. So on page 11, we are continuing with Hank and Linda on the bench. She wants a kiss. And Hank quickly finds an excuse to avoid that kiss um, uh, because he's wearing his latex mask. Yeah, yeah. I got to read the thought bubble. How can I hold her, kiss her when my face is made of rubber? <laughs> yes. So. Uh, any excuse to not kiss a woman, but very, very valid excuse. And then we quickly, in panel three, switch to that night um, of Hank in his beast form, free of his his leather and latex, um, falling down to the sky. He's going to break into the corporation again because um, his plan to do it during the day completely failed. Um he says, I couldn't have stood those straps another second and that mask. I hate to say it, but this is what I needed. The freedom, the power of the beast. So he uh, feels more himself. He's feeling some type of way in his Every drag queen I know feels this way when the heels come off and the makeup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just want to go run in the rain, right? <laughs> yeah. And he's looking very like hulkish. Like he's very blocky, big muscle, rippling muscles. Um, very like fearsome final panel. Suddenly he hears something. Wait a minute, what's that? And then on page 12, Iron Man swoops in and he says, Good lord, some sort of thing, half human, half animal. Hold it right there, ape man. Let's have a talk. And Beast just jumps over him. Um, I forgot that that Iron Man is still the bodyguard of Tony Stark at this time. Mm -hmm. So he's like, that's Tony's bodyguard. He must be here about Linda because Hank is now stressed that everyone thinks Linda is evil. Um, I won't let him hound her as I've been hounded all my life. That's nice. That's a nice thought. Um, get away from the brand corporation. He, there's a standoff now. They're going to fight. Iron Man wants to resolve it peacefully, even though he's like, I don't know what kind of animal you are. Um, and the beast just attacks him and beats the shit out of him, which is which is kind of fun to see Tony just getting thrown around. Um, uh, he says, there's nothing to settle, Iron Man. You're a trespasser, and trespassers take their lives in their hands here. And now you'll feel the might of the beast. And he gives him an uppercut. Um, Iron Man is surprised at how strong he is. He was only here to check on a mysterious girl, but he met King Kong. Um, Iron Man tries to send off a blast, not at him, not at the beast, but at some giant spools that fall on the beast um, and bury him. But that doesn't work. Um, so we were getting a lot of good action here. Um, one time, one time Iron Man shines a flashlight on Beast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then we. <laughs> He says, "Here's can I offer you a light, handsome?" And flashes him with a flashlight. Which, like, this is we've done that in Christopher Chaos. That exact. Panel. Oh yeah, we have done that. <laughs> Issue two. Yeah, Christopher Chaos flashes his flashlight on the vampire. Goes, yeah, yeah. So I'm um, not gonna make fun of that panel, actually. <laughs> it's like the exact same angle and everything. I know. Oh yeah. Um. And then he's been blinded, and then Iron Man grabs him by the heel and throws him into some other nebulous machine. And he says, I'm going to break you. Down boy, heel. And the beast says he will not fall. He gets punched in the, the throat by Iron Man, and then in the, in the chin. 
And then it looks like we've lost, the beast has lost. He's fallen. We just see a beautiful foot shot of him. And that, then, uh, that shot, that shot's the, uh, the signature image on his OnlyFans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get banged for that. And then Iron Man is interrupted by a group of guards who are wearing helmets and purple jumpsuits, which are pretty sweet. And uh, they say, all right, Buster, hold it there or we'll shoot. Taylor, will you take us through the last five pages? Yeah, so Linda comes in um, and Iron Man says, oh, Linda, then she's with the good guys. Marion's intuition must have failed her this time, which feels like a very uh, loose proof that Linda is 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 good. Um, so Beast seemingly is down for the count, but then he comes back and t- does a cheap shot on Tony from behind. Says, you can't put me down, Iron Man, but you can't put me out. You're the one who won't get up from this fight. I'll rip that armor right off your back. And then and then the guards decide that it is time for them to intervene. Um, and they fire upon Hank. Uh, it's a really good couple panels here where it's kind of emphasizing that they are in a very small space and that there's no way that this group of guards um, could miss their target of the beast. Hank, um, gets, Hank gets shot a lot in this six yeah. years, like a bunch of times. But he's bulletproof, which I was not expecting, um, having never read this issue. And I think that... it's less bulletproof and more like advanced healing factor. He's Wolverine okay. before Wolverine like is ready to show up, right? There's like a beast oh, mode, yeah. a berserker mode, and a healing factor. Yeah, because in the next panel there, um, he is springing on Iron Man, and Iron Man says, the wound's all healed in seconds. Um, B says that he won't die, not until I've killed you with my bare hands. They continue to fight um, with Tony saying, you know, he's gone full beast mode. Um, he, he's kind of given into the animal. And so Beast then goes for the throat like an animal would. And he makes that reference. Um, the fight continues. And then he gets shot at some more. Heals from that. Um, and then eventually kind of just gives into the bloodlust, the mind of the beast. Um, and Tony Stark is on the ground. It does, um, it does use that word bloodlust with like mm-hmm. dripping double exclamation points. Text. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Iron Man says, please, Beast, I beg of you, stop. And Beast says, no. And then this is my favorite panel. And I feel like this is sort of the climax of the issue. Um, it's it's Beast leaping towards Iron Man, all the guards firing upon him. It kind of just sums up, I feel like, everything that's been leading to that point. And it's tonight the Beast kills, um, which is very unlike Hank, right? Up to this point. So he seemingly kills Iron Man and then he kind of realizes that he's dead and he realizes what he's done um, and he flees and runs into the woods and says, you know, they can't catch me here. Um, And then this part was kind of confusing for me. Um, Linda says, the heck happened, Iron Man? And he's like, I don't know. Beast was just standing there for a few seconds, but I didn't quite. I thought that was after when he thought he killed Hank. Um, so it, I guess that that's alluding to what's about to happen. Well, um, and it's, so Be- it's revealed a couple issues later. Mastermind was tricking Beast with an illusion. That's why he thinks Iron Man is dead here. Well, it's at the end of the issue, isn't it? I think the last page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like it's it's, it's explicitly stated in two more issues. Oh, okay. It was Iron Man yeah. who created the illusion. Yeah, I got there on that last issue, but it was just, I don't know if I was just reading over Tony's dialogue too fast, but I had to kind of do a double take. Um, but no, and then eventually Iron Man says, you know what? I'm not going to chase after him. I'm not going to hound the beast. I hope you can all 
understand that in like typical avengers fashion right like i fought yeah. i had fun now we're not going to go after the monster running into the woods it's fine <laughs> uh the uh the final page is a surprise appearance by the brotherhood of evil mutants uh they are hanging outside the brand corporation it is mastermind Eunice, and blob the untouchable you guys i'll, I'll make my announcements about the next episode next but the next issue blob and Eunice are so gay they are the cute old married couple it's adorable Aww. and i love it so much they're uh they're really cute together uh, but uh, Eunice uh, and uh, and Blob are working for Mastermind here. Uh, Be Beast believes he's a killer, and now Mastermind wants to recruit him. He's uh, he's making a new team as Beast bounds into the woods. And this is a thing that uh, Tom Sutton does a lot. The moon is always perfectly behind him with whatever shot we get of him bounding around. Uh, this is a really fun, fun, fun uh, issue. What were your kind of thoughts and conclusion? What did what did you guys uh, enjoy about this, or what questions did it bring up for you? So I think for me, if I'll I'll start real fast. Um, I was really reflecting on on Hank and Beast as a character, and I think he's very desperate, right? And I think that's kind of been a through line throughout his entire career. He was, you know, desperate to do uh, to understand mutation. He was desperate to cure the legacy virus. He was desperate to change um, Cyclops's mind. He was desperate to control Krakoa um, and keep it safe. And so it's kind of, it was interesting to see him let go a little bit in this issue and kind of lean into the, the beast side of things. I know that's kind of a, a trope for him. Um, but just thinking about his entire history, it, it was interesting to kind of see this sort of hang up, right? Like this is kind of a big, uh, turning point in his entire history when he went from hairless to hairy. So there are a lot of uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde stories in comics, mm -hmm. right? The, uh, the Hulk, when he loses his anger, turns into the monster. Mr. Hyde's kind of a variant of that who loves the anger and like wants to be the monster. There's all kinds of characters like Solomon Grundy and the lizard and the green goblin who fall into this trope. Marvel's also doing a lot of horror books at this time. Uh, the Comics Code Authority changed its rules. You can you can use the word vampire and werewolf in a comic now. Uh, this is sort of a reverse werewolf storyline for me. He's trapped in the form of a wolf trying to pretend to be a man. Uh, and the discovery of his humanity is a huge part of Wolverine's character. Wolverine will be introduced uh, shortly after this as, you know, one of the most popular characters in the X-Men franchise. And when Wolverine first shows up, he's fighting the Wendigo, who is a monster, and the Hulk, who is another variation on this. This idea of man as monster and Hank losing his side to this berserker rage and it resulting in what he assumes is a murder. This is a, a thing writers will use for this character every so often. Uh, Taylor, you're highlighting his obsession, but there's also this dark side, this part of him that wants to give in, that wants to uh, finish the experiment and see what happens and then give in to the rage. Uh, Tate, what are your thoughts on the beast? Yeah, no, it was really cool to see, because this is like the first time obviously that we're seeing him in this form and like how this is like the origins of that duality that will carry through with the character for the rest of his um, like time in the book. Um, so it was cool to see the origins of that, like the mad scientist and, um, and the beast form, like literally um, I just see queer subtext everywhere, especially in the X-Men. So like seeing him being like, I've started at this new job at this new uh, corporation and I'm finally going to be a man, which is just me like 
I'm going to high school. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to college. I'm going to be straight and I'm going to I'm going to be this perfect man. No one will know that I like boys and like so I just see that everywhere and I saw it all over this issue. Um him like going like doing like going into drag of course. It's just all like so queer and then like this very performative relationship that he has with this woman who I know it's a part of him, like the emotions of being a beast, but like, as soon as one person is like, I don't know, she seems kind of sketch. He just like, is so performative to be like, no, Linda is my woman and I love her. And I don't say anything bad. And then I know there's a story reason, but like, I can't kiss her like because of whatever reason. Do I like her? Do I love her? Like he has confusion with his emotions. So I'm just like, all of it, I'm just like, this all is very queer to me. And I, I, I enjoyed that. And as he flees from the scene, there are his three gay best friends waiting outside. They call them exactly. Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And they're all gay. Yeah, come join the boys. <laughs> come join the boys. We're, we're heading out to Fire Island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Isaac, do you have any thoughts on the beast you'd like to share as we wrap up? Yeah, I just um, uh, jump on what Tate said. I definitely enjoy the story more with uh, Tate's interpretation, which I'm only as a... Uh, uh, a good thing but I like that that scene where he's literally making himself straight again is so funny to me and then at the end when he's finally the beast again he has like four panels where he's talking about how much he hates being a straight man you know it's fantastic it's really really wonderful so that oh and there's there are like there are a handful of panels in here that I think are really truly remarkable um Right now, I'm looking at page 11. There's a the second to last panel. There's a drawing of Beast leaping, which is just awesome. It's so good. I mean, I would you could you'd see that in any like modern day comic, right? Um, and and then you know it's it's colorful, goofy 1970s comic book stuff. It's big and it's over the top and it's it's fun. The uh, the there's a uh, on page eighteen that final paddle, which is like the close up of his teeth. Well, there's something about like scary teeth. <laughs> like, it's they look like Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, maybe it's part of his mask that he left on. It's gross. Yeah. <laughs> um. This uh. This era in comics is really good. In the Silver Age, which we've covered on my show very slowly over the last few years, there's a lot of nonsense and silly, campy stuff. But there's a few seminal stories, like the Sentinels and Juggernaut, and particularly some of the Neil Adams stuff at the end with Havoc and Sauron, you know, etc. This is great. This little six-issue run, uh, for fans who are listening, I would actively recommend going to read it if you never have, or rereading it if you have. It's 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 a genuinely fun time, and it's a it's a big tone shift uh, for what's going to come with the X Men later. Uh, lots of really fun stuff coming up on the show as we continue to review this. Oh, I did want to state quickly, there's a panel a couple issues uh, from now when the Angel teams up with the Beast in this series. And Beast is putting on his harness and he's like, oh, nobody understands what it's like to wear this harness. And Angel's like, I have to wear one on my wings all the time. Like, fuck face. Like, it, that's, and that's uh... one of the earliest X-Men things where Angel has to strap his wings down to blend in with the humans, right? So we do get that moment, which I think uh, when we look at the straps and him making himself straight is, is really ironic and fun. Um, as we are wrapping up, uh, I would love to hear from each of you uh, where people could find you online if they would like. And is there anything you want to plug? We're going to put this out on uh, January 8th. Uh, 
Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Taylor, Isaac, and then Tate. Yeah, so I am on Instagram pretty frequently. It is Taylor underscore the bookstaboy um, is my handle. Um, nothing to plug for me, so I'm just going to keep living life. <laughs> uh, are you going to the Uncanny Experience again next year? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Um, so I guess plug for me, um, I am going to try and attend a few conventions this next year. Um, I'm trying to budget that. I am working on a couple cosplays. I just got a pair of uh, black combat boots in the mail today. And I'm like, okay, these can be used for several things. Um, I found the perfect goggles for Cannonball. Um, so very excited to, to, to do that next year as well. That's fantastic, my friend. Uh, Isaac? Um, so you can find me on uh, social media if you search Isaac Goodhart. Um, I would love for everyone to read The Oddly Pedestrian Life of Christopher Chaos, since this is coming out in January. Uh, there are two issues being drawn by my our good friend, Sue Lee. Um, she's doing a Frankenstein backstory. I did. Don't worry, Tate. I did see that this was announced online already. So um, mm -hmm. we have seen the art and it is gorgeous. So please, please, please read that. And then I'm jumping back on the book with issue nine. I can't wait, my friend. It's so good to get to know you better. Thank you for coming and thank you for sharing your stories and your talents. I love my prints on the wall. Uh, it's it's great to see you today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, and then Tate. Yeah, I, you can find me on Instagram um, and Twitter slash X um, at, at Tate Rumble. Um, for plugging, I definitely I want to plug Christopher Chaos as well. Um, by the time this comes out, in February, um, so next month, the only pedestrian life Christopher Chaos number seven is coming out, which is the issue Isaac mentioned. It's um, we're doing spread across the series. I'm writing my own queer adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, Adam Frankenstein, the monster, exists in our world. So I'm going back and adapting the original novel, um, but doing it in our own way. And it's like, the gayest thing so if you want gay frankenstein comics drawn by suli colored by patricio del peche it's like so stunning it's like i'm so proud of it. um so and it, like you don't need to know anything like i'm it's, i'm adapting frankenstein from the start so you don't if you haven't read issues one to six you can just grab issue seven just to check it out um so definitely definitely do that uh, if you are interested, if you go back on my show to X-Men number 40, we talk about that time the X-Men battled Frankenstein's monster. Uh, my guest on that episode is Rihanna Pratchett, uh, and it's fabulous. It's a really fun time. Uh, so if you want more Frankenstein content. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. The three of you are welcome to add me. Uh, but you can follow Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Uh, the show is going some really fun places in the new year. I am uh, booked into April and things are exciting. Immediately following this uh, is going to be an interview with Steve Englehart about this entire run. Uh, I get to talk to him directly about all of his work with The Beast. The next several episodes of the show after this will continue to review those issues as we get there. Uh, so the next episode after this is going to be featuring Amazing Adventures number 13, which is the battle with the gay brotherhood. It's one of my favorite silly comics of all time. My guests on that are Jordan Bloom, Jordan Olson, uh, the girl with a great smile on Instagram, and uh, Mike Siriaco. Uh, it's going to be a really fun time. Then uh, stay tuned for the uh, episode after that, which features uh, Simon Furman and Alex Segura as we continue uh, this review. 
uh, right around this time on the Patreon channel where we do character focused episodes. I've got a really fun episode on Linda Donaldson coming out uh, and uh, one with uh, <laughs> with Demanda Martini on Fantasia, which I think is highly anticipated. Uh, so thank you everyone so much for the ongoing support on the show. Uh, the last thing, and I saved this for last on purpose, when you open page one of this book, the beast is defined as the bludgeoning beast. In this issue, he will bludgeon you with his fists. Uh, in the modern era, he will bludgeon you with his big words and bad morals. So this is a this is a character you can follow all the way through. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, Tate. Thank you, Taylor. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Hey everybody, welcome back to the latter half of the Gray Malkin Lane podcast this episode. I am so honored to be joined by a man I had the pleasure of meeting 18 months ago for in an interview, uh, the incredible and prolific writer, uh, Steve Englehart. Steve, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's been 18 months since we chatted. How has 23 been or 2023 been for you, my friend? It's actually been pretty good. Um, now that COVID is over, so they say, you know, except then they say it isn't. But, um, you know, I didn't, I just wrote for two and a half years, um, but I started going to cons again this past summer, and that's been enjoyable. So it's nice to get out on the road again. Fantastic. Things are always and ever changing. What are you currently working on? Um, I've got like three different projects that came out of that pandemic. Uh, one, actually, there's a fourth one that we'll never probably see print, but uh, the others are um, being looked at at the moment. And if I can get an artist that I want to work with and wants to work with me, then we'll do a Kickstarter and then we'll go from there. It's uh, it's an incredible thing to put a book together, but God, does it take a lot of patience? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a number of things happening in the world right now. It is a crazy time. And in my show, I'm getting ready to do a jaunt into the early 1970s. I've spent the last couple of years in the Silver Age. That's still the Silver Age. But it is uh, an era where the tone at Marvel started to change quite drastically. With a mm -hmm. lot of new talent coming in, Roy Thomas was in charge instead of Stan Lee. We got to talk a little bit last time about how you started as an artist, ended up as a writer, uh, and then worked for Marvel for a period of time before taking a few years off. What do you remember uh, kind of uh, about the Marvel offices when you first started there? You, you referenced in our initial interview that it was very much that bullpen feel that they advertised back then. Yeah, that was that was true. Um, it was a small group of people. I mean, no more than twenty, probably in in the Marvel offices. Um, everybody doing a specific job. I mean, you know, there wasn't any floating. Everybody, everybody had something they had to accomplish. Um, it was just a cool place to be. You know, I mean, if I I had been a comic book fan, and so here was my chance to get to do comics. And it was a cool place to be learning how to do comics, you know? Was this kind of a kid moving to the big city for the first time kind of time for you? Uh, to an extent. Not not entirely. I'd gone to college in Connecticut, so New York was not unfamiliar to me. Um, uh, but, you know, I getting a job, you know, uh, going in five days a week, that whole thing, that was new. But that, you know, wasn't a big deal. So looking back at those early years at Marvel, there's a kind of a, a pleasant feel to it, I hope. Oh, uh, absolutely. Good memories, good experiences overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More than pleasant. I was having a great time. 
That's fantastic. You uh, you got your hands on a lot of characters, and I know you started with the Beast. We're going to be covering a lot of your stories on my show this year. Uh, later in the year, and I'll talk to you later in the year if you're interested, we're going to get to some of your Captain America stuff. We're going to get to Avengers Defenders War, which is wonderful. But we're going to start the year with uh, Beast. I'm going to ask a couple serious questions to start, if I could. Sure. The, the country in the early 1970s, uh, in this kind of Vietnam War, man, it's just landed on the moon, Cold War era, things were changing a lot. We shifted yeah. kind of out of that atomic age space to kind of, you know, NASA took over the headlines and we're now looking at new possibilities, but also falling back on old capitalist kind of techniques. I would love to hear a little bit about your political and personal beliefs at the time. Uh, as a as a as an individual, and how those might have influenced the types of stories you were telling. Well, personally, I'm a liberal um, and have been uh, right along. Um, actually, my first vote was for Nixon. I was still learning <laughs> how, how that worked. <laughs> I voted but, for Bush uh, once. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, basically, uh, you know, always a, a liberal. Um, it was a time. The '70s was a time of of just, I want to say mind expansion, and I don't mean that just in terms of drugs, which were starting to come in, but I mean, people were interested in, I mean, the James Bond, and I mean, the idea that other countries, you would go there and you would have interesting adventures, that the world was out there um, to explore. And in addition, there was uh, women's liberation, there was black liberation. Um, you know, I mean, there was a lot of even a even because it, sorry, I said even Stonewall was in the same era, right? Yeah, we hadn't quite gotten to gay liberation yet, but you know, but that yes, yeah, Stonewall did happen. Um, there were just it seemed like there were a lot of possibilities. Um, it looks silly now that people thought, oh, you know, all you need is love, but at the time, uh, it seemed that that was a possibility at least. Um, but there was a, just a lot of exploration. I was going to say, I don't want to use the word foment, foment, because it was, um, I mean, on one level it was, but I, you know, like anybody else, when you're just living in the era, you're living as homogeneously, as smoothly as you can. So I didn't, you know, it wasn't uh, a rough time and uh, to be living or anything, but there were just so many things open that, that, um, you know, when I came into comics, when Jim Starlin and 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 Al Weiss and and Steve Gerber and Don McGregor, all these guys came in, and I've said before, Roy was the editor in chief, and Roy said, "I don't have time to edit all these books, so it's going to be up to you. If you're if you're the writer, you get it right, you know. And if if you can sell the book and get it in on time every month, then you can keep doing it." And if you can't, we will fire you and find somebody who can. So, you know, I was tossed into the deep end of the pool and was told it was my responsibility to swim. And I liked that. That was, you know, that was fine. I didn't want people um, looking over my shoulder, micromanaging what I was trying to do. Um, like anything else, when you get your first job, you don't go, well, I'd like to negotiate this, you know, it's just, no, it's like, here are the rules. And the rules in that case were, you can do whatever you want to do if you can sell the book. So I thrived under that situation. And, and, uh, 
you know, just as I say, I was having a great time because I was able to think up anything that I thought would be cool. Uh, I was working a lot with Sal Buscema, who could draw anything that I came up with. I've said in other occasions, I was very lucky to work with Sal because, you know, again, if I'd had an editor looking over my shoulder, that would have been restrictive. If I had an artist who couldn't draw horses or couldn't draw hands or, you know, whatever, but Sal could draw. I mean, I just say, Sal, this is the story, and Sal would draw it. That, you know, that it's old school comic book professionalism, uh, which again, I was just walking in the door. I didn't, couldn't say, oh, this is different or better or worse or anything like that. It's just like, oh, this is the way it works. And it worked, everything just worked well, you know, uh, as far as I was concerned. So um, that is a long way to get from being a liberal, but uh, <laughs> I never, I never, um, Again, every character is different, and and I did not. I did put a conscientious objector into Captain America because I had been a conscientious objector, and I thought it was worth doing that. But I mean, I've written uh, much more fascistic characters than the Beast or Captain America, and I just try to write each one, you know, as honestly as I can. So I don't. I'm really not really ever pushing an agenda uh the first major character i had was captain america which i sort of established that he was liberal um uh right but i mean it wasn't because all my characters are going to be liberal it's just that was that's who captain america was right i mean that's he was a new deal democrat that's what i always thought and and the whole thing about standing for america's ideals um rather than what america was actually doing at any particular time um, so I, I would honestly say, I mean, I never was pushing an agenda. I think I, because I was open to everything, everything was open to me and I was open to everything. I never had a problem writing a woman or a black guy or, you know, whatever. Um, if, uh, if listeners just, would go back if yeah, this go, go back and listen to the very first episode of my show, like the promo video sets up what the 1960s were like, mm -hmm. uh, which is when the X-Men first debuted. Now we're in the early 70s and mm -hmm. your Captain America run, which I would love to talk to you about in an interview later this year, if you'd enjoy coming back, because we're going to get to your Secret Empire and Moonstone stories there. All right, all right. Uh, but it's a significant tone shift. Instead of Karen Page crying in the corner, why, you know, why doesn't Matt Murdock notice me? The women were fashion icons. There were sleeker looks. They were getting involved in the action. They were punching people. Madame right. Hydra was killing people. We had a, you're, you, you got to put a woman in green as the leader of, of, uh, of Hydra, right? And the right. Serpent Squad. Like it's, it's a major, major change. And the, the James Bond kind of exploration of that, I think is, is significant. You also started using characters of color much more prominently than a lot of other writers were at the time. Now, you were doing Captain America and the Falcon, I know. Right, uh, exactly. It's really, really, really great stuff. It's a, it's a huge tone shift for the company. Well, again, I mean, that's... It's funny to me now because now it's 50 years later and now it's like history. But at the time, it's just your job that you're doing daily and you've got office politics and you've got to catch it plane to go here and you get I mean all these things and you're writing stories um so I didn't think about any of that stuff at the time but I did think for example when I got Captain America and the Falcon 
uh, it's got to be about Captain America. Captain America is Captain America, but it should also be about the Falcon. He's got his name on the thing, and he is a partner, theoretically. So, um, and that was, and that's the extent of my thinking. I didn't think, oh, he's a black guy. I got to do this because he's a black guy. It's just like, no, he's the partner. So he's going to get action. He's going to see his own storyline. Um, he was well established in the in the you know the black neighborhoods of, of New York, and so that's where he continued. But I mean, um, I you know I had a writer say to me, another writer uh, said to me right around when I was getting started. He said, you know, the only people we can ever really write are white men, and I thought, really? Because writers are supposed to be able to do more than that. And that's that was always my theory that I would just take any character that came my way and and do my best with him or her or you know whatever. Um, so, I would say maybe my political beliefs allowed me to do that, and that I didn't, you know, I wasn't, um, if I may say, I I didn't I wasn't prejudiced against anybody or or you know, uncomfortable by anybody made uncomfortable. I just, you know, they're all characters and they're all people. And I and I do have sort of a facility for sort of getting inside their heads and seeing what the world looks like from their perspective. Um and your characters uh, feel really individual as a result. Well, I hope so. I mean, that was yeah, I mean, I would like to prove that I can write stuff <laughs> other than me. Um uh so yeah, I mean I, I well, that's the so, answer. A question, a question along those lines then. Reading books back then from a 2023 perspective, mm. when understanding of cultural appropriation and um, I'm trying to think of the right words to use here. I mean, classism uh, and racism and sexism, all the isms that we can attach to things now. It's right. changed our understanding of the way things were written. We can look at the early issues of the X-Men and see everyone lusting after Jean Grey and kind of smile about it, but also realize, yeah, that was a problem, but it was also the way things were then, right? Yeah, <laughs> I was, yeah, I, I was recently, I think it was Thor. I was reading some early stuff and it was, no, it was Ant-Man and the Wasp. And and it was just sort of embarrassing looking at it now, uh, you know, the way she acted um, in in regards to the whole thing and, and all that. But people are products of their era. I mean, you know, the 70s was greatly advanced from the 50s, but the, tw the 2020s are greatly advanced from the 70s. And some things have gotten better and some things have gotten worse. And, you know, I mean, it just, there it is. But I mean, um, so what would you say? What would you say to modern readers who are analyzing characters like the Yellow Claw from the seventies? You know, when we're looking back at the way the characters were portrayed then, uh, do you think it's fair to look at things from a modern lens? Uh, would you challenge people to look at more of the way things were at the time? Um, well, I mean, I would hope people could keep in mind the way things were at the time. I know, I'm not. <clears throat> You know, it's not, there are certainly things that, that got done that we've changed our attitudes toward, but I don't think anybody back then, I really, you know, thinking about the other writers and whatever, nobody was like 
trying to be an asshole or, you know, or trying to be obtuse or anything. I think most of us were trying to be as, again, as open as possible as, you know, and, and, um, I mean, when Stan was writing stuff in the sixties, he was coming out of writing Millie the model at the same time. Right. And so I think he, a lot of those early relationships were romance relationships and, and romance relationships in those days included, you know, the woman, you know, going, Oh, well, will he ever like me? What, you know, what can I, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that was, you know, that was him in the sixties coming out of what he was doing. Um, you know, I was there in the seventies and the eighties and nineties doing what I was doing. And I, you know, I, I, again, I don't think anybody was trying to do anything evil. So if things get looked at specifically from today, like, oh, well, things were different back then. And we've, you know, it's like, you're kind of missing the point. I think if that's, if that's what you want to do. Um, but you know, I mean, I, everybody can do what they want to do. Um, the, that's, but the how, world, that's how I got where I am. So, you know, I'm all in favor of people doing that. But the world was changing the comics at the same time. Yeah. We see more feminist characters. Black right. Widow's portrayal in the early 70s is fascinating. It's kind of the women, women's live icon. Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy. Uh, even Linda Donaldson from Amazing Adventures that we'll talk about. Yeah, well, I was going to say, when I got the Avengers, I was told um, that the way you do the Scarlet Witch is she does a hex and then she falls down exhausted. And I thought, just, I, in my head, I thought, well, how, how does an Avenger, you know, I mean, she's an Avenger. Come on, let's, 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 you know, so she got more powerful. You know, my women got more stand up, uh, you know, in your face on their own than women from 10 years before. But again, you know, I mean, I so was we writing writing the gestalt so we left the we left the era where it was just one girl per team right it was sue storm uh, and janet van dyne and jean gray etc now we have characters showing up uh like mantis and misty knight and storm who we're going to get to on my show very soon characters uh, of diversity who were created and drawn by white men primarily who were starting to include more diversity in their right. comics and more portrayals. And right. the characters that we have today sometimes have problematic portrayals, but we got to put back to the intent of what was being done at the time and how quickly the world was changing because it doesn't get much better in the 80s. <laughs> the 70s was a good time for liberation in a lot of ways. But it's an interesting reflection uh, looking back from this kind of social justice lens that we occupy so now in this kind of cancel cultural world, you know, it's mm. an interesting thing. Uh, so let's start talking about Amazing Adventures. Amazing Adventures was a book that had featured the Inhumans for a little while. Uh, and then we had a new launching of kind of bringing the beast back. This was right. in the early 70s. Uh, I like to go back to like animation when I'm thinking about the way stories are told. This is the era of like Snoopy and Scooby-Doo, but like Fat Albert and Fritz the Cat have just come on as well. Uh, you go back and watch some of these older cartoons uh, and like a lot of the Marvel cartoons hadn't even happened yet. Uh, animation was changing. The way of telling stories was changing. And Marvel had come out of a long era of monster magazines. So there was a pitch, uh, Jerry Conway and Tom Sutton put together a pitch to bring the Beast back as a monster. Uh, right. Tell me some of your thoughts about this kind of early Amazing Adventures book that you inherited. Well, I was I was happy to get it. 
Um, I was I had been an X-Men fan. The X-Men was a failed book at that point. Um, it had ended with Jim Steranko and Neil Adams doing fabulous stuff. But I, my theory has always been um, X-Men and Avengers debuted the same month. They were both bi-monthly, but fairly quickly Avengers went monthly and it took X-Men another year before it went monthly. And I think it just sort of got cemented in people's minds that the X-Men was a secondary book, you know? um compared to the avengers certainly um and so people just weren't reading it and it failed and you know there you are um i think it might have been the first long-running marvel series that failed um failed means wasn't selling enough um and so they had this idea jerry and and tom and and roy i think was involved of, of okay the werewolf Dracula, mummy, and all that stuff is selling right now. So if we took the beast and actually made him more of a werewolf kind of guy, uh, maybe that would work. And it would just be about one guy rather than the entire team. So we're kind of like trying to figure out what didn't work before and where can we, how can we get out of it? That was all them. I mean, I just, I just was handed the book with the second issue. Um, and, you know, told now it's yours right um so you know i so I when you no problem with that i mean it's like okay that's that's the deal that's what that's the book that i'm supposed to write so do you recall why jerry and tom left the book i think they just were doing like a first issue to get it set up i mean i don't think um I mean, Roy would do that a lot. Roy would do the first issue of something and then hand it off to, to other people. Um, uh, so it's probably his impetus on that. But um, I think, you know, they all got together and sort of said, here's an idea that we could run with. And then they said, okay, we do the first issue and then we'll hand it off. Um, that's the best of my understanding of the whole thing. Uh, Did you have a... Think... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, I don't think Jerry, you know, got fired off the book or anything. I don't think he was planning to continue. Did you have a good working relationship with Jerry? Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't work with him that much. Um, I mean, as fellow writers, we were in parallel uh, tracks rather than cross tracks. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, um, he, uh, you know, when I got to New York, Jerry, Len, Ween, Marv Wolfman were already doing their thing, right? I mean, they had already started being comic book writers. So even though Jerry was younger than I was, um, you know, I mean, he was an older hand than I was. And and so, and again, we all hung out together in New York, uh, parties and, and stuff like that. So I know him, I know Jerry more socially, actually, than, you know, professionally. Um, I mean, I, I can remember I had to skip an issue of Luke Cage and he filled in on it. You know, I mean, it's like that, but that's how the bullpen worked, right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, they looked around the room and said, hey, Jerry, how about you? I mean, for this issue, that, I mean, that's that's kind of how those things went. So, yeah, you know. Tell me about uh, Tom Sutton and Mike Plug. Well, I didn't, I never met Tom Sutton. And only met Plug a couple of times. I mean, again, I, everybody's got more experience than I do at this point, right? So I'm uh, happy to work with whoever. And 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 uh, 
so I mean, but so I would write a story and send it to Tom Sutton and he would do his thing. I, I, you know, I wasn't consulting with him or, or anything that isn't really how a lot of it worked. It was, you know, in later, in later periods, it was, it was easier and more accepted to like the writer and the artist to talk about stuff. But I mean, I was just told, write these scripts and send them to Tom Sutton. And again, I just like, okay, that's how it works. That's what I'll do. Um, later on, of course, he was replaced by Bob Brown. Um, and I, you know, met Bob Brown a couple of times in the office or whatever, but, but, um, you know, most people worked at home, they'd come into the office to hand stuff in, but it wasn't like other than parties. Sure. You didn't see the other people. Right. Any memories of Artie Simic? Uh, I loved his lettering. I always thought he was the best letterer. Um, um, he drew balloons that were like TV screens. They had, you know, they kind of rectangular with the curved edges. And it was just very legible. I always, you know, I mean, Sam Rosen, uh, John Costanza, there's plenty of people, John Workman, plenty of people who can do good, really good lettering. And, and you know, but as a fan reading those books, I always liked Artie's lettering, uh, but I never met him either. So, you know. How about uh, how about Jean Izzo? Well, I met her. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, some people you some people would come around the office. Some people would be in the office, you know, quite often. But but most people weren't. So, and uh, then I wasn't after a while. I got out of the office. So. so you you went in five days a week and then started working from home as well. Yeah, actually, it was four days a week um, when. I've told the story before, but I basically uh, Gary Friedrich took the summer off and they needed somebody to fill in for him. And Gary suggested me uh, because we had gotten to know each other. And so he, you know, he suggested me and Roy's like, okay, sure. And, you know, I did not, I, the idea of working for Marvel was something I really wanted to do. Uh, and so I was all the impetus was to like say yes to whatever, but um, I was at the time I was living two hours outside the city. I was living up near New Haven, um, and there were trains. Connecticut's got trains, but it was still two hours in and two hours out. And so I said to Roy, "I'll do it four days a week, but not five. I mean, it's like I'm applying for a job and and." in a place that I really want to work. And I'm going, yeah, here's my conditions. I'm not going to come in here five days a week. Um, and he was like, all right, sure. And, you know, I was, it was the low man on the totem pole, editorial totem pole. One day a week wasn't going to like throw anybody uh, into a tizzy. Um, and so that's what I, you know, that's what I was hired to do was to, you know, just do editorial stuff, whatever books would come through and you'd read them and make, if there was something that had to be changed, you would say so and hand it off to the person who would change it or whatever. Um, uh, and even on a comic book schedule, they could, they could get along without me one day a week, but, sure, sure. Uh, you know, but so I, you know, at the end of the six weeks, Gary didn't want to come back. And so then I, they offered me some writing and, and everything came out of that. Why was Amazing Adventures canceled? Or, or well, why did the beast story end? Because you got you got a uh, Kill Raven after that, the War of the World stuff. After right. That. Well, Amazing Adventures and Astonishing Tales, I think, was the other one. They had, you know, they they'd kind of taken all their 
two hero books, you know, like uh, Submariner and Hulk or Iron Man and Captain America and split them into individual books a couple of years before. And so they were thinking, well, we, you know, that got that worked really well for a while. So why don't we start another couple of books with two characters in them? Um, and Amazing Adventures had the Inhumans by Neil, you know, and and the Black Widow by Colin, I think. Um, I mean, on paper, sounds really good, but whatever, people weren't into two characters in the same book anymore, uh, maybe, or Maybe Marvel had expanded too far. It's hard to say, but um, you know the the Amazing Adventures run, Captain America or um, Inhumans and Black Widow came to an end. But they so then they went on to do one character stories, i.e. the Beast in this case, um, and it ended because that didn't sell either. Uh, you know that. Um, I, I did what I did and, and, and was enjoying it. And there was a lot of, there was, it was interesting because the feedback in those days, people had to actually type up letters and put them in an envelope and put a stamp on them and sure, take them to yeah. the mailbox. Right. And then you'd get a, you know, so you'd get actual physical letters, which you could read and people would respond to your stuff. Um, and, and so I could tell that, you know, people who were reading it, we're having a good time. But again, I think a lot of people just didn't, you know, didn't want to look at any X-Men thing. I couldn't say, but you know, it isn't, it is absolutely true that I could not make that book sell. But fortunately, Roy didn't fire me. Uh, well, you got, liked, you went on to Hulk and cap and other stuff. Well, right? that's it. I mean, he liked what I was doing too. He, you know, he thought this is, this is reasonable stuff. But, you know, we can't overcome the X-Men problem. So, you know, when the Beast was going under, um, I did get offered. He gave me um, Captain America and Defenders and then later Avengers and then Luke Cage and then Doc Savage and, you know, the Hulk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, because you could have as much work as you could actually do. And, and you know, you can, everybody can write. Well, not everybody, maybe, but I can write. I can write four books a month comfortably. At the time, I didn't know what I could do, but I mean, I I wasn't missing deadlines, so I knew I could do more, and you know, and so forth. Um, so we're so. going to be devoting a lot of time on my show in January, February, to these those early beast stories before we start landing in the other early nineteen seventies stuff. Okay. Uh, in Amazing Adventures number eleven, a new tone is set. Jerry Conway and Tom Sutton give us Hank McCoy leaving the X Men and taking a job at the genetic research company, the Brand Corporation. Right. And this is an interesting thing because in the sixties books, it was very much that everything to do with the American government must be trusted, but foreign governments can't always be trusted. But in the early seventies, we start getting stories, you know, Nick Fury, agent of shield, et cetera, where we start seeing corrupt government institutions, people using right. things for weapons. And it still kind of leans toward like trust, trust the government, but also it's uh, it's okay to question it a little bit too. So those those kind of ideas around corruption right after Watergate is a really interesting thing to me. Tell me your thoughts there. Yeah, well, I mean, this was even before Watergate, this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, because the Vietnam War and Nixon being president, I mean, there was plenty of, of obvious corruption and, and double dealing. Henry Kissinger was there. I mean, you know, um, so anybody was paying attention and again it was a people were 
questioning everything and, and expanding everything and so forth. So, yeah. Well, and those early 60s books were targeted at little white boys, right, in a lot of ways. And in the early 70s, those little white boys have grown up and their sensibilities have changed and the target right. audience is different, too. Right. And that's the same for us writers, too. I mean, we were, you know, we had read the books in the 70s and then we were getting a chance to write them. In the, we'd read the books in the 60s and we were getting a chance to write them in the 70s. Um, so... You know, I, I again, I tried to reflect the wider world in that regard too. I mean, you know, the the government, well, the Comics Code Authority, right, which was still in existence in those days, said you know, policemen can never be bad and things like that, right? Um, but it was on its last legs, the code, and and um, Stan had done his drug issues in in Spider Man to kind of. Yeah, with Harry said you can't do yeah. that, and he said I'm doing it anyway. You know, I mean that was that was the revolution with the comics code, but it was still in existence in you know in the era we're talking about. Um, so I think there was a, a built-in tendency to trust, as you say, and at the same time, the world was not operating like that. So um, in trying to write comics in that world. I'm sure there was some sort of um, middle ground being sought there. Again, I wasn't, I don't recall pushing either the government is great or the government is terrible. It just, you know, it was like whatever was going on is is what I was trying to write about. Well, and there's a big difference in the in the way tone was shifting on television at the same time. The 50s shows, right. the 60s shows, the 70s shows. The, the families were getting more complicated. There's more people of color showing up all over the place. It's a it's a shifting time. There's also another subtle shift, and the Beast story is all about Hank McCoy being hired to look into genetic research. Now, the atom bomb and its influence, all the characters in the 60s were influenced by radiation or scientific discovery. But now we start talking about genes. We start talking about right. DNA. And in this story in Amazing Adventures 11, Beast isolates like the chemical composition of mutation. Uh, you know that they're going to use it as a weapon. We're going to talk about this with Spencer Ackerman and Jordan White on my show. But he ends up drinking his own formula. He misses the deadline in uh, in curing himself, and now he's trapped as a monster. There's also, uh, he has just found love. He's met a girl named Linda Donaldson, who turns out to be a spy and a murderer. We see a woman committing murder on the page in number 11. And then you take over in number 12. Right. Uh, you're both the writer and the colorist on your first issue there, which is fantastic. Well, I, you know, when I was on my way up, um, I started working with Neil Adams. I was working with Neil Adams, and one thing he taught me was coloring. Um, because, you know, when you're young and trying to get started in comics, you'll take any job you can get. And if you have an extra skill, then then that's better. So Neil basically taught me how to color. Um, and I like, you know, I liked everything about comics. I liked coloring, too. So um, whenever I got a chance, it was only if half a dozen times, if that, over the entire rest of my Marvel run. But every once in a while, I would color a book just because I liked to color a book, you know? And and so starting off, I had one book bi-monthly. It wasn't like taking up all my time. So I had time to color it. So I did. Yeah. And, and a lot of writers, uh, even nowadays, will still take on that freelance work where they can get it to try to make yeah. a difference. Absolutely. Now, in issue number 12, let me summarize it quickly and we'll talk about it. 
Beast is struggling with this kind of dark side of his that's been released. He's a literal monster. There's a lot to grieve, right? This woman that he loves. I kind of get the idea that it's his first lover. It's like the first person he's he's having sex with. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a there's an energy between them. Uh, he despairs and he runs to the library to get books on making plaster masks and applying makeup. And he creates prosthetics to put over his face and hands uh, and like straps to kind of get himself straightened out a little bit. You have a really nice comparison a few issues later where he brings that up and Angel's like, yeah, dude, I've been wearing straps on my wings all these years. I know what you're going yeah. through it away. Yeah. Uh, He's longing for Linda. He's upset that the world is not uh, what it once was for him. And then Iron Man shows up with his telepathic girlfriend, Marianne Rogers, uh, who's like, Linda's bad news. Beast and Iron Man end up fighting. uh, And Beast thinks Iron Man is dead at the end of this issue. He runs off into the woods, having a fearing that he's sacrificed his humanity. There's a lot of really cool moments in this story. But tell me some of your recollections here. Well, I mean, I was handed this and and somehow the beast was going to have to like operate in the real world. Um I honestly couldn't say if if the Jerry and Roy and and Tom had come up with the idea of wearing the mask and the straps and handed it to me or whether that was me. But I had to do it and I mean cuz it was uh, it was necessary to do it. I'm not sure that um all the plastic masks and so forth would have worked in all situations. And I, and I have to say he and Linda were not having sex because there's no, no actual no, no, way. Not once he not, became furry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So um, uh, it was an unrequited love in that regard. Right. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't get there from here. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, it's like, okay, I've been handed this. Now I've got to like, set it up to keep going um and so i took you know the the plot threads that had been left from the first one and and ran with them and tried to figure out how this would work exactly um i wanted iron man i wanted somebody famous in this book um to try to get the listener or the readers yeah yeah we're trying to sell it so and and that cover uh I wrote the cover copy for it as the as the editor of my own book, um, and you know the beast says something about he's dead. I killed him, and then I had a blurb that said, "And he's not lying," because he honestly thought that he had done that. But Stan, as I recall, I mean, again, Stan looked at it and said, "Well, no, we're not going to say that," and so he changed it to whatever is actually on the cover. I think more some more generic thing about it had to happen or or, you know, whatever. Um, but I was trying to be clever. You know, it's absolutely true that the beast thinks he killed this guy, you know? But uh, that was a little too clever, I guess, for Stan or whatever, you know? Representing kind of the loss of his humanity or his, his heroism, though, right? Because he, yeah. he didn't have the restraint necessary. He, it, 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 he took it too far. Now, we'll learn later it was Mastermind messing with him, right? It was it was illusions. Uh, but it's an interesting place to take the character. And that, that Jekyll and Hyde energy of exploring the scientist who's turned into the monster is, mm-hmm. uh, is a really fun read. In uh in number 13, you bring back the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, Mastermind, Blob, and Eunice. Uh, I'm gonna put on my queer lens for just a minute. Uh, we intuit sometimes when we analyze the blob and Eunice the untouchable relationship that they're so right for each other. And your issue where they're, they're calling each those other. Two guys? 
They're uh, you're calling they're calling each other Mr. B and Mr. U, and they're bouncing off each other. There's a moment where they squeeze the force field and and Blob's bulk, and like Beast pops out of it like uh, like soap out of a fist. It says yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's it's just it's really queer and it's really cute. I I don't know. I'm sure you did not have that thought about that relationship. <laughs> um, no, I can't. I can't claim to have done that. Um, uh, far be it from me to to cast aspersions on people who are that fat, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't think of a sexual relationship between those two guys. Um, yeah, but I mean, so the X Men was a failed book, but. If you were writing the Fantastic Four, then you were in charge of all the Fantastic Four characters, which was Doctor Doom and Immortal, you know, the Annihilus and uh, Thing's girlfriend. I mean, you know that you were you were the guy who could say what those people are going to do. And and in the Marvel bullpen, you know, if somebody else was going to do something with Doctor Doom or wanted to, they would come to you and as the Fantastic Four guy and say, "Can I do this?" And if you say yes. Then you would figure out how you would do it and so on and so forth. The you know, I had the characters I had were the X-Men, really, you know, and they were failed. Um, but I ended up using them a lot. They, you know, I, I used them as guest stars a lot because they were the ones I could control. They were the ones that I had some say over. Didn't have you to use them here, you use you use them and these evil mutants in your secret empire story and Captain right. America, along with Banshee. You use Mimic and Vera in your Hulk stuff. Yep, 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 yep. They were characters that didn't have a home, and so um, I could do that. I, you know, I later, jumping ahead, but I brought in Patsy Walker again for characters that were mine that I could do something with, without, you know, having to go through uh, channels. Um, again, going through channels isn't the worst thing in the world in those days. You just talk to the guy who was writing the book and ask him, but. I don't want to have to keep asking people, can I use your character? Can I do this? So I was looking to build a stable of people. And so I sort of fell into the idea that like, well, yeah, I can use it. I mean, even though we put all the other X-Men aside so that we could concentrate on the beast, I can use those guys, yeah, you know, yeah. and I can use their villains. Um, so the way Tom Sutton yeah. draws mastermind is just this crazy, lecherous, evil, creepy guy. Uh, yeah. You're the you're the first to make mastermind really creepy. <laughs> um, now you bringing Patsy Walker and Buzz Baxter in. Uh, she was the teenage heartthrob. She was kind of Marvel's Barbie in in even a bigger way than Millie the model was. She's the one we remember a lot. Uh, right. She had hundreds of books. Uh, bringing her back as an adult who's married, her high school boyfriend's now in the military, and he's not a nice guy. He goes on to become full supervillain later, of course, as Mad Dog. Uh, your choice to bring them back and to advance her in this way as the kind of vapid but like very smart housewife, you just have to look for it. <laughs> Tell yeah. me your thoughts on 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 using these two characters. Yeah, well, that was I. I just explained why I did it. I had when I was a fan, I read everything. I mean, I just loved comics, and it didn't really matter. Um, so I read those 60s romance books with the sappy relationships and so forth, because that's what they were. I mean, that was the books that were there. Um, so, you know, Patsy and her girlfriend, Hetty, had been, um, uh, you know, Archie-like characters for a long time, doing Archie-like stories. But then in the mid-60s, when, you know, when Stan was writing all these 
you know, relationship books among superheroes, he switched over to uh, Patsy and Millie, I think, too, as, as you know, romance heroines. Yeah, and uh, then they showed up in uh, the, the wedding of Mr. Fantastic and the yes, Invisible Girl, right? Yes, they did. And so, you know, Stan had brought them into the Marvel Universe as just a joke, I'm sure, probably Kirby's joke, to, you know, to put them in the crowd outside Reed and Sue's wedding. Um, but they'd been, you know, that gave me the permission, for want of a better word, that I could use them. I mean, there weren't an infinite number of romance characters I could draw on, but later, much later in the Avengers, I got all the Western heroes, right, in in there. Um, uh, but yeah, Patsy had, and her boyfriend Buzz, who had been a nice guy in the books, in those books, um, I started, you know, I needed a character and, and you know, built their current relationship out of that. Uh, it's it's a really fun portrayal. And then, of course, you go on to bring her into the Avengers as Hellcat, and she's always been around ever since. As I, I, I liked her. I mean, you know, again, I treat them all as legitimate characters. And she had been, as you said, sort of a vapid teenage romance heroine. Um, but in in the early 2000s, I did a three-part mini with Norm yeah. Brayfogle. Yeah. And, and I came up with this line for her. She just keeps going... I'm just a girl. And meanwhile, she's fighting the devil in hell and doing all this stuff, right? I mean, it's just, I really liked the fact that she never, you know, she was sweet and she was innocent in some ways. And yet she was competent when the time came to actually do something, you know? There's been some and, great work with this character over the years. And they've taken that origin story of her as the comic book heroine and turned it into, like, her evil mother, you know, the, the worst soccer mom publicizing her daughter at, her, at at the expense of her daughter's mental health. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, Patsy has committed suicide and come back from hell. Yeah, Christopher Catwell just gave us a series where she's battling mental illness through the whole thing. It's it's it, There's some really interesting portrayals of her along the way. And you brought her back. It's great. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the beast story in number 13 is all about him kind of, uh, losing his mind for a little while. He's amnesiac and he has these, these people he kind of remembers that made him belong. There's an elaborate plan to steal a big old diamond. It's a, it's a silly early seventies plot, but it results in beast realizing he's not evil, uh, which takes us to issue number 14, which is where he finds out Iron Man is still alive. Uh, he fights Quasimodo, who's been sent by the Secret Empire to infiltrate the band, brand corporation, and his fur turns dark here, uh, from from like gray to a, like a more black, which then settles on blue pretty shortly after that. Uh, tell yeah. me your thoughts. Um, well, there was a thing, might have been right at the same time or very close to it, when Roy kind of looked at characters that weren't doing real well and thought, okay, what can we do with them? That's when the Submariner put on a bunch of leather, right? <laughs> you know, instead of, because otherwise he's pink. He's just a big pink guy with green trunks on. And, you know, the theory was, oh, well, that maybe that's not exciting enough. So we'll, you know, we'll have him dress in black leather. Um, and I, I'm not, so the Beast, they said, okay, we're going to turn him into this werewolf and here's the color we're going to use and all that. But the book still wasn't really selling. So they thought, well, maybe if we make him look a little scarier, you know, and then go a little harder on the werewolf thing by darkening up his fur. Um, uh, again, that was an editorial decision. It wasn't my decision. I, it was fine with me. Um, 
but that was Roy, you know, saying maybe we can do something here if if we do that. Um, so the uh, the juxtaposition uh, between Beast and Quasimodo as well. Quasimodo's uh, a kind of a monster programmed to be a monster, but wants to be a man. The Beast right. seems like he's a monster. Uh, the juxtaposition between the two of them uh, from that kind of monster man perspective is interesting. I thought that was fun. I thought that was fun to write. Yeah, uh, I love Quasimodo. Weirdly, we did a we did a focused episode on my show about him, and now I'm a huge fan. <laughs> uh, and then you also like did some really fun stuff with the Linda Beast relationship in this issue, where she starts to figure out something's going on. You know, uh, yeah. the inner thoughts are always very self absorbed, but she's always putting on this front. It's a it's a good time. I enjoy the two of them. Uh, well, eventually, I had to indicate, you know, she had to do all, you know, all my characters have to do something over time. I don't want people to just sit around, okay, we've established this character and that's just it. So Linda was going to evolve somehow. And, and as the stories unfolded, um, she became, you know, we got more inside her head and got to, you know, got to see what the world looked like from her perspective. Right? And then again in Captain America later. Yeah. Which is yeah. where you follow up on this story. Uh, the secret empire you did not create, but you brought them back as this kind of government infiltrated secret society. It's right. got a very Ku Klux Klan energy to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's different than the sons of the serpent or Hydra who are similarly awful at Marvel. Uh, what was your decision to bring these guys back? And did you face opposition in pitching a story at them at the government level? No, not at all. I mean, I, 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 Marvel, Roy said you can do whatever you want to do if the book sells. And that was true. He was not into telling you, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. Um, if I If I came up with a story and it sold, then Marvel was happy. That's, that's all they needed to know. Um, I think the Secret Empire, again, they were sort of, I mean, Hydra's the big secret group. Um, the Serpent Squad, you know, was, was came along later. But, I mean, Secret Empire, they'd been sort of the big bad in the Nick Fury stuff, but mm -hmm. they'd never really, you know, they never got, they never climbed the mountain exactly. They, you know, they were good villains, but <clears throat> nothing, excuse me, nothing memorable. Um, you know, where you go, oh, that's comic book history, what they just did, because they didn't, they didn't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they were there for, for people to use. And, and they were tied into Nick Fury, but Nick Fury was, I don't know if we were still doing a Nick Fury book at that point, but you know if they were the nick fury book was um pretty far down on the totem pole at that point and nobody nobody was gonna claim the secret empire per se i mean i'm sure i asked but uh but nobody was um gonna say no you can't do it because i've got something else um so you know the brand corporation sort of lent itself to government skullduggery and all that and so everything just kind of developed uh organically really um in uh in issue 15 we meet the griffin 
who's kind of just a street level thug who gets upgraded by some uh like <laughs> he gets a he gets lion paws uh eagle wings and for some reason a lion mane grafted onto his body and the mane it's like, <laughs> cracks me the way this guy's drawn in that first issue is really fun we also get a guest appearance from the angel here which is really fun and the the secret empire shows up a little more prominently patsy gets some nice hero moments uh tell me primarily about your thoughts about the griffin uh it was just a character you know got to invent if you don't you got to have a villain every month right and again there weren't an infinite number who were uh available to me and and even if there were you're sort of supposed to create things now and again um later on you kind of learn that it's all work for hire and you don't own anybody that you actually create <laughs> and then people start to stop creating things um but uh yeah i mean i was he looked cool you know at least in my brain to start with uh you never know exactly how these guys are going to get drawn but um, I he thought, has a surprising yeah. legacy of Marvel. He's <laughs> shown up like several dozen times. Everybody has, right? I mean, that's. Um, I mean, uh, not the not the Tumblr so much. <laughs> uh, you don't know <laughs> the untold tales of the Tumblr. I mean, <laughs> um, so, yeah, the Griffin. He could, you know, he could fight. Hank on top of a tall building, he could do interesting things. And, and again, it's the monster versus monster theme, <laughs> which is interesting because the beast is someone who did not mean for this to happen to him, but the griffin chose it, right? And right. they're monsters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it did bring in the angel I mean, because of the flying part and all that. Um, so I was, you know, I'm trying to build a world for the beast. And so his friends did show up every once in a while and things that happen might impact them as well as him and, and so forth. Um, so that's it for the Griffin. And then in number 16, which is your last issue of amazing adventures, because 17 is a reprint except for right. a couple pages of exposition. Right. Right. Uh, we get we get a crossover with Thor 207 and Justice League number 109, yes, where there's several heroes visiting a Halloween parade in Rutland, Vermont at the same time. Now, I know this has been talked about, but I don't think a lot of readers are familiar with the story. Will you tell us about the uh, the Rutland, Vermont connection? I will. and But I want to go back just to the issue before that. And, oh, please. And say, I just want to say, I can remember trying to sell that book, being told, you know, it's still not going anywhere. Um, I said to Tom Sutton um, in the script, I said, I want to see Patsy Walker in a negligee on the first page, you know? I mean, it's like, uh, she looks we good. sell it with sex. You know, what What can we do here? Um, so that's why Patsy's uh, wearing a negligee at the beginning of that story. Um, and in that story, you know, she helps the beast out um, and says, in exchange for that, I want something from you. And I was going to tell you what that was, in succeeding issues but then there weren't any succeeding issues so then it had to finish that up elsewhere right later on in the avengers when she became hellcat she wanted she wanted to get into that world that was the deal but it so you had you had hellcat plans earlier on then the cat no set. not at all no no okay. no i just i do a thing a lot where i'll go that seems like an interesting thing to do in this story and i don't really know where it's going to go but you know it'll go somewhere I trust myself to make it go somewhere. 
So I'm going to, I'm going to foreshadow something that I don't even know what it is I'm foreshadowing yet. Um, and so when she said, I want to, I want something from you, I did not know what that was. Uh, the stories would have told me what that was. And eventually they did over in the Avengers. Um, but anyway, so that's fantastic. I love that knowledge actually. So, uh, all that was set up, but then the year before, up in Rutland, Vermont, Tom Fagan um, was a guy who lived there, and he was in charge of the Halloween parade. They always did a parade where the kids would put on their costumes and parade through this little town in Vermont. Um, and comic book people heard about that. And the year before, uh, Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, Bernie Wrightson, Al Weiss, maybe just them, I think. Not sure, but they went up there. I mean, they they actually went there, and then they came back, and Neil and Denny did a story about it. You know, where Batman goes to Rutland, Vermont, and they came back and they said it's really fun. You know, it's fun to go to Vermont at Halloween time. Vermont looks great when all yeah, the trees yeah. are there, and 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 you know all that stuff. So a bunch of us that year said, "We let's go." You know, and I had a car because I was, you know, I'd been a college student. And even though I, you know, and I was living in the, in Connecticut still, so I needed a car, whereas the rest of them were New Yorkers and they didn't have cars. So I said, you know, well, come, you know, let's all go get in my car. And so uh, me and Jerry and Len Wein and Glynis Wein, his wife at the time, um, we went to Rutland and we had a great time at Rutland um, in real and you, life. And you put all of you in this story along with Roy and Gene Thomas well, was, yeah, and it was, Friedrich. Yeah, it was... Um, I mean, we were, our job was to create stories and, and, and because anything was available, I, you know, I personally was drawing from stuff, uh, anything that seemed like I could make a good story out of it. I was, I was fully prepared to do that. And so, um, I'm pretty sure it was me because I don't think either Jerry or Len would have come up with this idea. Um, in all, in all modesty, I think this is sort of my kind of thing where I said, why don't we all do a story <laughs> that fits together, even though we're writing three different books and one of them's at a different company and all that? Um, that would be fun. We could do something there. And and they agreed. And so we worked out this story. I forget the order now. I cannot I cannot tell your listeners who what the order is. But if you get all three stories together, you can figure it out. But you can see us. We arrive in Rutland. We get caught up in somebody's adventure, and then we kind of walk away. But then we walk into the next story and get involved in that adventure. And then we walk out, and then we walk into the third story and, and get involved in that adventure. And so you can read it as one big story. Um, and it was just it was just fun to do. And, and you know, Marvel didn't have an objection to it, right? I couldn't speak to whether, you know, Len had trouble with Julie Schwartz or anybody else over at DC, but he did it. So it must, you know, it must not have been any trouble that, you know, that he couldn't get out of. Um, and so I think when we did that story, I still didn't know that that was the last story. Um, but then I was informed that they were going to, you know, the Beast was just not doing it. So they were going to try something else. They had Kill Raven ready to go. Um, but actually, they didn't, because when the next issue was ready to print, 
Kill Raven was not ready to go. And that's the and Beast so Reprint story. Right. So they came to me and they said, can you put together, like, in the next two hours, <laughs> something to fill that issue? And so, you know, we took the reprints of the Beast story from the old X-Men and, you know, did a framing sequence and and uh, and and got that done, you know. And, now and, during the during the visit to the parade, there's a moment, and I and I haven't read those other two issues recently. I'll have to read the crossover all together. Uh, but Tom Pink <clears throat> is dressed in uh, as Nighthawk instead of Batman, which is really right. fun. But there's a moment where Glennis and Jerry seem to be arguing during the parade. She goes missing and then comes back dressed as Supergirl, and he's so frustrated with her. Was this based on like an argument they were having at the time, or do you remember? Not that I recall. Um, I mean. I think I would have tried, you know, to take high points from our weekend and try to work with them again, sort of in jokes for those of us who were there. Um, but I doubt that I would have, you know, highlighted an argument if, that it actually happened. You know, I mean, I'm, the argument was for uh, probably just to get her to, to get into Supergirl costume, but. Um, but Fagan, you know, after the Halloween parade and after the kids had gone about their business, Fagan had a party at his house. He had a big old rambling Vermont-type house, and there was this party. And in those days, cosplay um, didn't exist. And I can distinctly remember I'd been upstairs in his house with him, maybe. I'm not real sure. But I came downstairs, and there was a, like, the whole downstairs was full of people dressed in costume. The Hulk and Doctor Strange and the Scarlet Witch and all this kind of stuff. That was the first time I'd seen that, you know, seeing real people dressed up uh, to that extent. Um, so that was very cool. Uh, you know, uh, just a sight that I was unaccustomed to. Um, so just in general, it was a fun weekend. I mean, and, and probably... I mean, I'm sure Tom's not around anymore, but I think they still do the parade in Rutland. And, and um, I don't know what they'd think if a comic book fan sort of showed up in Rutland just for the ambiance. But but I mean, it's a public event, so whatever. I um, love Vermont. I, I've been to Burlington and Brattleboro. I've never been to Rutland. I'll have to check it out. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we had a really good time and came back. And then at some point we were told that's it for the beast. But then I brought him into the Hulk later, and then I brought him into the Avengers later because, you know, I mean, because I could. It's still, there still was no X-Men book all the way through that time period. Um, the new X-Men was still several months out ahead uh, at the time. So, Are you still in touch with Mike or Jerry or Glennis? Um, Mike, yeah. Um, Jerry, I think, lives in L.A., and... Um, the CGC people were telling me that they'd tracked down Glennis and gotten her to sign a bunch of books. So I know she's still around somewhere, but I don't know where, um, you know, CGC could tell you, but I, I sure, didn't sure. get that information. I had Mike on uh, my show uh, about a year and a half ago. He, he's a great guy. Mike Friedrich. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, it, it, back in the day you had to go to New York physically you had to be physically able to be in new york to hand things to people and get things handed to you um because there was no internet there was no fedex that kind of thing but kirby had moved to california and he seemed to be making it work so when i went to california the first time and liked it 
I thought, well, I could make this work. You know, it can be done. And so over time, people, you know, well, first of all, I moved 3,000 miles away from most of the people in comics. But people in comics tended to spread out from that point, too. You know, I mean, um, so, um, you know, I haven't seen Glennis in 50 years, but she was a nice person. And, sure, and sure. I'd love to I'd love to see her again. But um, I'm I'm often my vector and other people are often their vectors yeah never been easier to stay in touch with people but also you know, it's an era where we don't talk a lot the last thing i'll bring up uh you got to bring the juggernaut back one more x-men foe you got to yeah. bring the juggernaut back to face beast at this parade it's kind of a hilarious juggernaut story uh he's bouncing in and out of the cosmos basically and it ends up with him uh kind of like he drank from the holy grail in indiana jones turning into a creepy old man at the end before he fades away into the crimson, yeah. crimson cosmos, it's a fun story. Uh, any juggernaut recollections? No, just that I liked him. I th I thought he was a great X Men villain. Um, uh, that I think he first appeared in the first issue that Kirby didn't draw, but Kirby did layouts for. Um, but I thought he was, you know, I thought he was an interesting character. And again, I'm just sucking up the X Men characters any any way I can. Um, the ones that I liked. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, just, you know, it's interesting to write a character who just sort of keeps coming. But in this case, as you say, he couldn't keep coming because it kept <laughs> <laughs> so it was frustrating to him um, and also disconcerting for everybody else because you never knew when he was going to come back and start trying to run you over. Um, no, but I mean, the beast, you know, I, I can honestly say i couldn't sell the book you know yeah. I, tried, I couldn't sell it but i had a good time on it and again apparently roy liked what i was doing enough to hand me all these other things so maybe indicia wrote a funny series called uh, x-men forever in the early 2000s where these there's a bunch of characters that keep getting sent back farther and farther in time and there's a running gag with the juggernaut every time he gets sent back he's like stuck on an asteroid or in another dimension or buried in concrete and he's like ah oh, man i'm stuck again like it's, just, it's it's pretty funny actually uh steve what a genuine joy to hear these recollections i'm getting ready to record all of these episodes upcoming so this gives me tremendous insight into uh your time and talents at the time so thank you so much for sharing these stories with me you're welcome uh, the we're gonna have a great time i've got uh i've got some awesome <coughs> talent coming on to review your books with me it's gonna be a wonderful time uh as we're wrapping up where could people find you if you'd like them to find you and is there anything you'd like to plug we're gonna put this out right at the beginning of january no i'm still getting the stuff organized for the kickstarters so i'm not ready to do that yet um i've just got a website steveenglehart.com and there's an email link on it so uh, you know i can be contacted that way if, if somebody thinks that's a good use of their time um yeah so maybe the next time when we talk about captain america or whatever by that time i should have something to plug at this point i'm still doing the, the spade work on it. fantastic in 2024 we should be talking about that mimic story from hulk as well as the secret empire story so i'd love to pick your brain on those uh, later in the year and thank you again so much for coming on uh, everybody stay tuned we will be back next week with our review on Amazing Adventures number 13 uh, and we'll be going on from there it's, uh, it's going to be a fun beginning to the year on the show uh, thank you Steve Englehart we will see you all back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, 
with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Elkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Elkin Lane.